Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Hidden Gems Movie Podcast. My name is Sam. I am joined by my podcasting partner, good friend, co-worker, eternal political enemy, and movie soulmate, Steve. Steve, how are you today? Oh, I don't know. Kind of, kind of down. Kind so of down. so Steve has, by the way, just admitted to me prior uh, to hitting record that every time he says hello, he tries to allude to uh, one of the movies that we're going to talk about. And then I told him, because I felt he was seeking some sort of, um, some sort of acknowledgement of his efforts, that I wouldn't usually dignify it. Uh, so this is the first time I dig- I'm dignifying Steve's uh, corny jokes trying to allude to these movies we're doing. So now I can stop. <laughs> so the reason Steve uh, is pretending to be down is because we're doing a general Hidden Gems episode today. There's no theme to this other than, you know what, movies we love that not a lot of people either know about or talk about. I kind of assume by this point, if you listen to this podcast regularly, you may know about these movies um, because this is a pretty nerdy movie podcast. I, I think, you know, this is not, I think, for the general movie going public. And you know what? If we can convert some people, great. Absolutely. That's awesome. You know, the whole point of this podcast is to get people to watch good movies because it's just one of those art forms where... The best doesn't rise to the top. Look, I'm not a sculptor or a painter, but I gotta assume the Mona Lisa's famous for a good reason. I don't think <laughs> I don't think the Mona Lisa's famous because it had explosions. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. I I don't know how many great works of genius paintings from the Renaissance are languishing only to be appreciated by the uh, the the select few. Maybe I'm wrong. No, I, I think if if they have been chosen by now, they're probably not worth choosing. However. If you need to categorize, uh, if, if every episode needs some sort of category, I have invented a category that fits these two movies. Oh, perfect. All right, so the movies are, I'll just tell you right now, they're Affliction by Paul Schrader, which I believe came out either in the late 90s or the early 2000s. Steve, that's your bag. In fact, well, that's, that's, the, that's the category. I'll, I'll fit you. Okay, and then the other, uh, the other movie is Dark City, which... Um, came out in the 90s, which I think probably more people listening to have probably heard about because it's achieved some cult status. Right. The category is 1998, the year that both of these movies were released. Now, uh, Affliction was wide released in February, but in order to qualify for the Oscars, it it was released in, in December. Both these movies came out in what was Academy Award award winning wise, and we both have shared our contempt for the Academy Awards, but this is one of the finest years. This ranks up there with 1939 and 1972 and 1982 as some of the greatest years of all time. Or is this, it's the, considered is this the year that. that Heat came out or The Insider or one of these movies? Um, I'm not sure about The Insider. I don't think... I think The Insider was 99. Heat, yeah. I think, was 95. I'm not 100% sure okay, about that. Okay, because I think 99 up. is also considered a great year for movies. And in fact, there's another movie podcast that I like. I don't uh-huh. mind plugging it because it's much more popular and famous called The Rewatchables. And they did a whole series of movies, I believe, just from 1999. Well, 1999, I thought was kind of... Uh, as far as a crop for Academy Award-nominated uh, movies, it was a little weak. You had uh, American uh, Beauty winning, which mm-hmm. I didn't think was good. I no. love The Sixth Sense, which was nominated. Yeah. Although, um, when, the, when American Beauty won at the time, it was beloved. It's aged worse. It wasn't something like um, Crash or Green Book, where people despised it at the time. You know what I mean? 
That's true. For some reason, they thought it was sophisticated I satire. I did, too. Oh. Now, I was in, like, the eighth oh. grade. Yes. So I can be forgiven. <laughs> I can see it appealing to, perhaps, uh, a, 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 a young, sharp eighth grader. A young, but, uh, liberal-minded <laughs> eighth grader. The movie's so yeah. bad. I think it's... And, and, and that bending is so awful. And she's a wonderful actress. She's so terrible in this. Anyway, we're getting off track. 1998, you have um, Shakespeare in Love, mm-hmm. which one? You had Saving Private Ryan. Yep. You had Elizabeth... Mm-hmm. Which is like the Godfather of the Middle Ages, you know? Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> it, yeah. It's fantastic. This was a really strong. Although year. I think I think Shakespeare in Love is terrible. Do you like that movie? I, I love that because that's one of the the much reviled uh, Oscar wins for Best Picture, and and now there are articles written about how that Oscar win is entirely due to Harvey Weinstein's "He Whose Name We Shall Not Speak" <laughs> anymore, um, but his back behind the scenes machinations to get that movie's its win. You know what? DreamWorks though started becoming the same thing, where it, yeah. it became a publicity generating thing. Uh, you know, it really put a lot of force, and they started DreamWorks started winning, winning all kinds of uh, uh, best picture movies too. So you know, I, I don't knock it there. Uh, forget about the Academy Awards. Uh, I think that uh, this is a wonderful. You've got Tom Stoppard, right. who's who's really his screenplay is the star. His dialogue is the star of the, of the movie. It is just a pleasure to listen to that dialogue. All right, we should get away from now. Shakespeare in Love. One question I want to ask you though is, when I told you I wanted to do Affliction because I love that movie, did you choose Dark City because it was from 1998? No, or is it just a coincidence? I, oh yes, I did. I reviewed. Okay. I went on Wikipedia and looked at all the movies from 1998. And there was another movie which I forgot that I was going to pick, mm-hmm. but I did, I did love Dark City. These are two movies that did actually uh, Affliction, and we'll go, that, go over it when I go over the stats, did get a little uh, Oscar love. Yes, it did, absolutely. Uh, Dark City did not. So, but these movies were, had a microscopic audience compared to right, um, right. the better known movies. So basically, you refused to let us do an episode without a theme. That's what this all comes down to. <laughs> you you couldn't handle that. You couldn't handle a generic Hidden Gems movie episode. So you, it had to have a theme. Are you if, suggesting a, a, some sort of, uh, you know, obsessive compulsive uh, yeah, disorder? on Some my sort part? of dogma, at least. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about Affliction. Affliction is being hailed by critics as a film of startling intensity. Performances by Nick Nolte and Sissy Spacek go for the jugular, says the New York Times. Entertainment Weekly calls it Paul Schrader's best movie yet. And John Powers of Vogue magazine raves, a beautiful, harrowing film. Perhaps the best performance of Nolte's career. The sucker shot himself. Who, Jack? The other guy. I figured you'd know what really happened. 30-30 at close range. Will it make it? Deal away. From Paul Schrader, the writer of Raging Bull and Taxi Driver. I think there's some dirty business going on in this town. Director of American Gigolo and Light Sleeper. What are you doing, playing cops? He's a lot like me when I was his age. You wouldn't have done anything like that. Shoot somebody. And the acclaimed novel by Russell Banks. But at least I was never afflicted by that man's violence. That's what you think. (laughs) Comes an emotional story of love, of pain. I'm free of you. You're not on my back anymore. You see how easy it is? You think you're getting away with it? And of self-discovery. You know, I get to feeling like a whipped dog some days. Some night I'm going to bite back, I swear. Academy Award nominee Nick Nolte. You need me. Even Pop, Pop, for Pete's sake, he needs me. This town needs me. 
Academy Award winner, Sissy Spacek. What in the world is happening to you? Film legend, James Coburn. You done finally done it. Right, done it like a man done it. And Academy Award nominee, Willem Dafoe. Affliction. Before I, uh, so let me just tell you before I even run down the plot or before you run down the stats, my personal history with this movie. Um, I was in college and I was, this was back in the times when you had to flip through the channels on your TV. <laughs> now I, I don't even have live TV. I, everything I want to watch is on demand. You know, I look it up in advance and then I try and see where I can find it, whether it's on Amazon Prime or Netflix or whatever, right? But at this time I was flipping through the TV and this movie, I think it was already maybe three minutes into the opening had just appeared and I saw Nick Nolte at the time I really didn't know much about Nick Nolte actually but for some reason I decided to watch it and by the end of this movie I was really floored um what I'll say is that certain types of movies appeal to me <clears throat> they are small kitchen sink dramas right really well crafted I won't call them low budget but mid-tier budget dramas about real life that are tightly constructed and while this is a grim movie, what I will say is, and kind of if you have seen my taste by now, my love of Sidney Lumet or the lives of others is, if I had only ever made one movie in life and it had been Affliction, I could die a happy man. I could be proud of that. I'm not saying Affliction is the best movie ever made or that it's not flawed in some ways, but it's a movie that has something to say, is tightly constructed, is well acted, is well written, and if you only made one movie in life, that's a hell of a movie to make. I agree. Okay, I agree. so there are some truths they get to this movie. Yeah, that if Sidney Lumet, great a director as he is, if he were, if he had directed this, I think he would have made it a little softer, a little easier to swallow. Yeah, I totally agree. Mm -hmm. um, this movie's raw. But before we get into that, Steve, you do the stats, and then I'll do the story. Okay, here's the, here's the uh, stats. Affliction. This was released February nineteenth, nineteen ninety nine. The perfect time of year for this movie to be released because Oscar it season. is yeah. well it's Oscar to not only that but uh it matches perfectly with, oh, uh, with the grim tone milieu or if yeah. I'm if I'm yeah. pronouncing that right it was released by Lionsgate it was uh, it runs 114 minutes it only cost six million dollars which is pretty darn shoestring and I can believe it <laughs> and it made 6.3 million dollars <laughs> That's a, that's a, uh, another thing these two movies had in common. They they yeah. made what they cost, which means they lost money. It was written and directed by Paul Schrader. Um, it was based on a novel by Russell Banks. It won a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for one of its co-stars, James Coburn, mm -hmm. who had never been nominated before. And uh, Nick Nolte got uh, Best Supporting Actor. So first, we I mean, should, best best yeah. actor nomination. I beg your pardon. Yeah. So we should talk about um, Paul Schrader for a second, the famous uh, screenwriter of Taxi Driver. Is he is he really famous at the end of the day with the mainstream for anything other than writing Taxi Driver? <laughs> you know what he's not famous for? What's that? Writing the screenplay to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Oh, if you don't I say. am correct, well, you wouldn't know it because his he never got screen credit. Oh. If I and I hope I'm remembering this correctly, that Paul Schrader worked on this. He, the, the, the guys were all yeah. these guys were the same guys together: Martin Scorsese, mm -hmm. Brian De Palma, yeah. Schrader. This is the hidden guys, secret of the movie business: is screenwriting credit. And yes. so many movies have other people contributing to them that never get credit, but probably get paid. Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. Well, 
you have to at least contribute 10% in order for the union, the, the Writers Guild, uh, to even consider a mm -hmm. petition to have your name on the screen credit. And he, apparently he thought that he deserved screen credit for this, but he didn't get it. Yeah. Um, and that's a, it's a really solid screenplay. Um, so Paul Schrader is an interesting character in Hollywood history. Um, I'm going to tell you guys now a great book if you're interested in movies. My favorite book ever on movies is called um, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, How the Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll Generation in the 1970s Saved Hollywood. Big title, but that's the name of it. <laughs> and Paul Schrader is one of the prominent characters in this, and he's a character, all right. He's a very idiosyncratic, very dark... Very intellectual. Intellectual, intellectual. but paranoid, socially awkward um, guy who came from a very strict and tough Calvinist upbringing. I mean, that was always a thing that stood out in my mind. And part of the reason I think it's important to have some sort of grasp on this kind of tormented figure uh, that is Paul Schrader is that this movie, boy, I mean, even though he didn't write the novel, he must have had some sort of familiarity with what it's about. And let me, let me talk about what it's about real quick. Oh, the part I hate. Okay, let's see. Can I do this under a minute? <laughs> tough through it. Tough let's through see it. if I can do it under a minute. Okay, here's what it's about. Nick Nolte plays a borderline alcoholic loser police officer in a small town of New Hampshire who is divorced from his wife, has a very uh, sort of, you know, not much of a split custody over his young daughter, and is basically just a loser. The whole town kind of makes fun of this guy. He's a cop, but he gets no respect. Nobody respects his authority as a cop at all. He has pride, but also very little self-respect. And what you find out in this movie is that he comes from a horribly abusive uh, childhood home. His father, played by James Coburn, was a terrible, terrible um, alcoholic, abusive father who took out most of his rage on Nick Nolte. And as a result, Nick Nolte now bears the affliction, right, hence name of the movie, of the experiences of his childhood. And... At a certain point in the movie, Nick Nolte becomes convinced that there is a conspiracy going on in the town that uh, revolves around the accidental shooting of a man who was hunting. Um, the you know supposedly the man shot himself while hunting by accident. Nick Nolte assumes there is more to it, and as Nick Nolte goes down this rabbit hole of trying to solve what in his mind is a murder mystery. He becomes more and more unhinged, um, and his his grasp on reality becomes looser, and he becomes more of a sort of a of a strange figure in the town. Meanwhile, his father uh, James Coburn is still alive and just tormenting Nick Nolte the whole time. He will not let Nick Nolte sort of forget or move past the trauma of his childhood. Steve, have I forgotten anything here, or is that a pretty decent summary? It's a pretty decent summary. It's a very good summary because mm -hmm. this is not an easy movie to quantify at all. Um, but, uh, of course, talking about uh, uh, Nolte's torments mm -hmm. uh, or his, his, his paranoia, it's fed by a plot device in the, in the form of Willem Dafoe. That's right. And that, it, this is where I think the movie goes a little bit astray. We can talk about Let's that Let's get into it right later. now. It sort of <clears throat> goes into my, one of my questions for you about yeah. Willem Dafoe. But Willem Dafoe plays his brother. And basically, Willem Dafoe kind of puts it in Nick Nolte's mind that there might be a murder mystery. Um, is that the plot device you're talking about? Yes, yeah. exactly. He puts it in his mind. He sort of leads Nick Nolte down this self-destructive path. And maybe doesn't... My question for you was whether or not he gets 
if he takes the blame he ought to take for his <laughs> role in what is eventually Nick Dalty's undoing. I don't, I don't want to spoil this movie, but what I'll say is the movie opens up with a narration by Willem Dafoe about how his brother um, veered into bizarre uh, criminal behavior, right? That's how the right. movie opens. They let you know that Nick Nolte is headed down the wrong path. Another thing that both of the, these movies yeah. have in common, they, they, they give away an awful lot through narration that maybe they They shouldn't. actually don't. And we're going to get into that later about Dark City because something very interesting happened in my rewatch of Dark City, but we'll oh, hold off on okay, that, okay? Fair enough. All right, so let me just talk about why I love this movie. Um, this movie gets to the core of trauma in, wa- in, in ways that very few movies are willing to do because it's brave. It's not an uplifting film. And essentially, its message is trauma can be so overwhelming that there is no escape from it. And then, in fact, it's one of the, like, the really harsh truths we have to learn in this world is that some people are just doomed, that they've experienced too much in their life, and now that their behavior is so self-destructive that there really is no saving them, and that you wish you could, but they are headed down a path that isn't necessarily their fault, but they're headed down in any ways because of the affliction of trauma that they go through in their life. I mean, I find that is the, the basic tenet of the movie, That being said, the movie is so damn well-written and so finely uh, acted by Nick Nolte and James Colburn. I mean, I really think... God, I'm just giving away all my questions to you. (laughs) But I think this is the performance of Nick Nolte's career, and I have a hard time imagining anyone else doing this role, this unhinged, desperate, loser-type role. I mean, could you see anyone else doing this? Uh, That's a good question. Uh, I'd have to think about that. Nolte's fantastic in this movie. He's one of those guys who, if you just run into him for a few seconds, he 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 offers a broad smile. Yep. Well, you know that within a few minutes after the glad handing and and his his old his stock ways of ingratiating himself, you'll you'll notice something threatening behind him. Yeah. Something he's trying to he's trying to suppress. A deep anger. Yes. A deep anger. And it, it explodes. Uh, at the drop of a hat. That's one right. guy. At one point, um, he's got his daughter, who he's desperately trying to get to enjoy his company. Yeah, she can't. She loves him. She tells him she loves him, but she every time she's with him, she wants to go home. Yeah, and I think she feels, you know, she knows him well enough. She knows that he could explode at any moment, and he does at this at the at the counter of a a bar. It's a yeah. bartender. Yeah. yeah, but that's actually towards the end of the movie as he's yeah. becoming really unhinged. Um. Guy, you know what? Screw the five questions. I'm just getting them all out now. Let's, um, do, it. Let's do it. But but basically, my favorite line in the movie is he's talking to his brother on the phone, and this is towards the beginning of the movie. And I, I'm going to have to open up my notes and read it to you exactly. He says to his brother, who's Willem Dafoe, and you get the sense that Willem Dafoe is his only lifeline in the world, uh, that Willem Dafoe is the most important person in many ways to, in Nick Nolte's life. Nick Nolte's name is Wade, and is his brother's name Rolf? I think it's Rolf. Yeah. Weird name, but anyways. And he's talking to his brother on the phone late at night because his brother's kind of his therapist. And he says to his brother, I get the feeling sometimes that I'm a whipped dog. Someday I'm going to bite back. And then his brother says, haven't you done that already? And he goes, nah, I've growled a little. Someday I'm going to (laughs) bite. And that, and that, and that one interaction right there is the whole movie going forward. Um, Steve, was that, is there any chance that was your favorite line in the movie? 
It isn't, but something kind of similar yeah. is the Nick Nolte character is Wade. Yeah. And he doesn't have he doesn't have a lot of self-awareness. No. And yet he does come up with it. Yeah. And and that's yeah. a question that I would like to ask you. Yeah. At one point in the movie, like you said, he's growling. Uh, he thinks he stumbled onto this conspiracy, as mm-hmm. you mentioned, and he thinks that he's it's going to make him the most valuable person in the in in the in the world. Yeah, he is. And the world, by the way, of, is just his town. Yeah, just yeah. his town. He says this whole damn town is going to make me a hero. But later, after things really go to pot, he can't control himself. He explodes in anger with his bosses. He takes this conspiracy theories way, wildly too far. He's talking to his daughter, again, late in the movie. All she wants to do is go home. And um, he says something that, um, like, he might do something uh, that would be illegal. And his daughter, played by, uh, her name is Jill. She says, uh, you're a policeman. And Wade says, no, not anymore. I'm nothing anymore. That was my favorite line. Yeah. Because earlier not that long ago he thought that the whole town was going to cheer and call him a great man and now he's now he's um saying i'm nothing now is that does that mean that like sometimes he's delusional sometimes he has self-awareness or is this just extremes of manic depression that he can't control it's kind of hard to say what i think is i think it's just uh when he says you know i'm nothing i think this is just an emotional swing he no, still I, doesn't I disagree. It. You really right, think? So here's what I think. I think okay. in in assessing his actual worth, basically, I think a lot of times, I don't want to put down anyone who suffers from depression or clinical depression or anything, but I think we are more often real with ourselves when we are critical of ourselves rather than when we are praising ourselves. We live in a great self-love movement at the moment. Everyone's got to love themselves. But the truth is sometimes at the end of the day, when you're going to bed and you take stock of who you are, what you've done, and really what your value is to other people, I find you'll be more honest with yourself if you take a critical look at it rather than an I'm great look at it. Because chances are more people are not thinking how great you are at that moment than you are thinking of yourself. You know what I mean? <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I, I think what he, the conclusion he comes to is fairly accurate. Yeah. He is nothing anymore. He's right. Sometimes but I, I get the feeling that he's yeah. going to bounce. He would try to bounce back. And, and of course. But there's evidence life. in the movie later. That's that, the desire that, to live. Yeah. You know what I mean? But, but I think, Well, self-approving. I should say self-approving because remember what he does after this, and I don't want to give anything yeah. away, but he continues down that paranoia right, that to an is ex- the extreme need, level. But even in some ways, the need to to be worthy of oneself, like you can't. A lot of times, self-realizations can be devastating, and they don't actually take hold. They're brief moments of epiphanies that have no lasting consequences. And in fact, that's what The Sopranos was all about. Tony Soprano, every once in a while, would have a moment of self-realization. And he always said he'd hold on to it, and he never held on to it. <laughs> it didn't and change him. It didn't never make a changed difference. Him. And, and it doesn't make a difference with this character. And either. it doesn't make a difference with a lot of us. Mm-hmm. A lot of us have moments of self-realization. But then we, in order to enjoy our limited time on this earth, we sort of go back to telling ourselves the lies about ourselves and, and, our, and our value on this planet. Um, but yeah, I, I do think it was not necessarily a wild emotional swing as much of a deep moment of self-actualization. Um Look, in regards to this movie, here's what I want to say. And I kind of wanted to, I, we, we got at it a little bit with um, the lives of others. The thing I look for most in movies, television, entertainment are, are writers who can create scenes where by the time the scene is done, 
you have to pause the movie if you're lucky enough to not be in a theater and and just say to yourself, wow, I witnessed a real moment there, a real um, moment of wisdom and insight executed well, written well, acted well, that is just powerful, right? And you take stock of that because you know you've seen it. You know you've seen it in the moment, a really a work of genius in just a scene, in just a moment. And I think this movie has that. And I think it has it to boot. I think it's got it not only in the writing and the acting, but oftentimes in the wonderful cinematography. Um, the shot in this movie that I had always taken with me my entire life, like ever not my entire life, excuse me, but since I saw it, a shot I never forgot was Nick Nolte, he boozes, but he's not a full-fledged alcoholic like his father is. He's functional. He's functional. functional yeah. And at one point in the movie, once he's really sort of, the, the whole idea of this movie is that the longer it goes, the more he continues to be like his father. And his father lives in this house where he just sits in this armchair all day and he just drinks and he just drinks booze. And then there's this shot in the movie when it's really becoming clear that Nick Nolte's turning into his father, where basically he he kind of says to his old man, give me some of that. And he takes the bottle. His dad is, the shot is from his behind his father who's yeah. sitting in his lazy boy in his living room. And the shot is slowly tr- dollying forward. Nick Nolte takes the booze. And he just sits down next to his dad in the other armchair and starts drinking with him. And it's such it's such a simple shot, and it conveys so clearly what we need to know, which is the unfortunate terror of the path this man is going down, which is the path he doesn't want to be going down, which is turning into his father. And I find that the movie is full of scenes like that that are just so powerful, and they're almost always revolving around Nick Nolte. I mean, did you feel this way when watching this movie? Yeah, I thought this movie, you know, was shooting at truth and, and trying to be uncompromising. Yeah. wasn't going to take any edge off of any scene, yeah. just to make the audience, you know, right, swallow it, yeah, a, a little bit better. Yeah, yeah. No, so, I, I think it's, I think it's. So uh, there's another, there's another part in this movie too, which is that Nick Nolte actually has a girlfriend played by Sissy Spacek, and for some reason she's an angel. And it's, I'm going to ask you one of my other questions. So we're not going to do this, the normal structure uh, we did this, but it's basically, um, what does she see in him? What does Sissy Spacek <laughs> see in Nick Nolte from the very beginning of the movie to basically be his girlfriend? To me, it makes no sense. Well, see, she she's like the bomb. Uh, you said that his brother was like a lifeline. She is yeah. too. She, she's like a bomb. She, uh, she heals something when she's in his presence, yeah. at least at the beginning. But what does she, I know what he gets out of her. Right. What does she get out of him? Well, like I said earlier, he is the kind of guy, and I, I know, I've known people yeah. like this, that when you first meet them, they're friendly. They know how to uh, glad hand, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I think he knows how to be charming enough w- with women. Yeah. His father, absolutely not. Yeah. His father is just Was an abusive pure husband as well. Coal. He's evil. <laughs> yes. He's evil. He is pure coal. Yeah. He thinks the way to, uh, you know, to, to handle women is to hurt them. He's, and know? he's also deeply immersed in his idea of masculinity. Which is just toxic. I mean, this, this is the movie best is ex- perfect. Yeah. It's, it's about toxic masculinity. Yeah. It's hard to run away from it. Before it, that was even a phrase. Yes, yes. Yeah. This is absolutely... Uh, Sissy Spacek joins Nick Nolte early on in the movie mm-hmm. at the man's house. And that's when they find out that Nick Nolte's uh, mother is dead. It's a really awkward scene because it doesn't yeah. play out the way you'd think. Yeah. It's 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 the weirdest 
death revelation I've seen since the, there's this Australian movie called Animal Kingdom. Yeah, I at know the exactly very what beginning. You're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah, know, yeah, great the, movie. The, that's that's another hidden gem. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it is though. There's a there's a TNT show that was a remake. Oh, of forget it. that TNT show. That garbage. I'm just saying, TNT but the show. point is, it's known about. Right, but yeah. it's it's uh, people need to see see the movie. Yeah. Uh, Sissy Space, I can't believe what she's seeing. Yeah. You know, and she knows this guy. She knows everybody in the town. I think it's like a revelation that uh, the father, mm-hmm. they have to actually have to wake him up because I, I think the door is open or something. The door yeah. is open. It's freezing. No, so no, 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 no. The, the heat broke. The heat the house, broke. That's right. And the, the father broke. let his wife freeze to death. He was downstairs where there was a fireplace and he's drinking, he's drinking the brown, as he calls it, which is, you know, brown liquor that will warm his temperature. Meanwhile, he thinks, I think that he set up an electric radiator heater upstairs, but it's not working and his wife freezes to death. And he appears to have really no regret or remorse. And And the small amount of remorse or regret he shows seems to be an act. He doesn't really care. Well, it's funny because I, I think he does appreciate his wife at the funeral. Yeah. But he only uses the memory of his wife to denigrate his children. Yeah. His true passion him, in life. Oh, yeah. His true passion in life is cruelty yeah. to his uh, children. He dismisses them as well, Jesus freaks. Uh, Jesus freaks. And sissies. Candy asses. Candy I think asses. Is, yes. That's right. Jesus, Jesus freaks and candy asses. And he's really referring actually to his daughter, who's religious. And his son Rolf, played by Willem Dafoe, who's a writer or historian, yeah. like an intellectual. Now that, the, the, um, that character yeah. is kind of an odd character, and I think points to a couple of the movie's weaknesses that I didn't notice. The, the first. He must be the author. He must be the author of this book, the novel, right? I mean, at the end of the day, the guy who wrote this book is probably he's the Rolf character. Well, yeah, because he's yeah. he's um, he's giving. Uh, not only narration telling us what happens, but he's also giving us analysis. Which is you know? awful, by the way, which is the worst part of the movie. The worst part of this movie is, I'll just say there's a very powerful scene when Nick Nolte has done something, you can either say terrible or courageous or maybe both, and he's sitting at his 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 kitchen table drinking. And as he's drinking, and it's a very powerful shot that I don't want to give away, but as he's drinking after he's done this thing, Willem Dafoe starts narrating what it's about. <laughs> and it's completely useless because you get it already from the image. That is the point of movies is that you don't have to spell things out sometimes the way you do in books. I don't always hate narration, but I, it usually 99%. can be. It usually is awful. And uh, this movie, the narration is far too explicit. It's it's virtually, and, and it really surprises me. Yeah, uh, because I don't think Schrader. I don't think this narration, unlike the other movie we're about to do, this was not imposed on him. Right, I don't right. think he had to do it. The character is very odd because the the character of the of the younger brother. If I hadn't known, if they didn't have interaction with the father, I would have guessed that this character was in Nick Nolte's mind. Yeah, right, right, that he, right. That he completely generated it in his mind. He might have been better that way. <laughs> <laughs> it might have been more effective if he was in Nick Nolte's mind. I think it would have added a, an interesting uh, dimension, but yeah. you'd have to get rid of the, the... The narration would have been almost too self-aware. Yeah. Uh, the, the character, he doesn't make any sense because for no particular reason... Mm-hmm. He implants in uh, Wade's mind yeah. that uh, this whole thing's a conspiracy. You got to look into it. Yeah, and he's the police chief as well as being the guy who uh, clears the snow. Yeah, he feels an obligation, which becomes an obsession, which becomes self-justification. His whole his whole human raison d'être for yeah. for you know uh, 
for being in this town. Yeah, the, the Willem Dafoe character... And then character, he pulls and then he pulls away and says, yeah. oh, maybe I was wrong. Yeah, he <laughs> you just gets, gets, your tooth, gets your tooth fixed instead. Yeah. <laughs> That's what he tells after he's led him down this horrible rabbit hole. And then he kind of like... You know, one of my questions to you was, does he deserve more blame? But the problem is, I wrote that question before the end of the movie in which he says, maybe I deserve some blame. <laughs> which is like, all right, great. That, like, that doesn't really excuse the writer no, for he, this he, obvious <laughs> plot device. Yeah, the, the, the character's being a little too easy on himself. Okay, so <laughs> one last thing I want to talk about, which just really shows you sort of the power of this movie, some of these really finely written scenes, which is Nick Nolte has exploded in anger towards his girlfriend, Sissy Spacek, and his daughter, and they sort of flee from him in terror. That's a shocking scene, it really And when is. they do, after they flee from him in terror, his father, who's been watching the whole time, who has been nothing but degrading to Nick Nolte the entire movie, says to him, I love you, I'm proud of you, finally, you're a man. You Finally, you know how to deal with yeah, women. Yeah, at yes. Nick Nolte's most shameful moment, this is when his dad shows that he approves of him. I mean, mm. it is truly wicked uh he's one of the most wicked characters i've ever seen in a movie and you know what i I think he's too wicked okay so let's see um five questions for you okay do you like the opening narration i think we're both a big no on that a big no okay second did rolf abandon wade Uh, no i i don't think that's i don't think it's entirely fair to say, I don't think I don't think when apparently Rolf uh, left at a fairly young age, yeah. and it's interesting because when they recall a particularly traumatic point in their childhood, mm-hmm. Rolf says he doesn't remember it. Yeah, as though he maybe he wasn't even there. Yeah, he says he wasn't there, and, yeah. it's, and it's also interesting because it's kind of like he needs to not remember it to move on with his life. The character played by Willem Dafoe is in a good place in his life. He's still he's still you know traumatized by the abuse he suffered as a child, but it's not. Um, hindering his life, as he literally says in the narration. He says he's, it's made him careful. Yeah. This is in dialogue, not narration, but mm-hmm. he says, I am a careful, I was a careful child, I'm a careful person. Yeah. Something that... And then he says, I wasn't, thank God I wasn't afflicted with that man's violence. Yes. Ah, but what does Nick Nolte say? He says, oh, you think so, huh? <laughs> yeah. He doesn't believe it. He yeah. doesn't believe... Uh, he doesn't want to believe it yeah. because Nick Nolte knows he's afflicted. Yeah. He doesn't want to believe that it was possible to come out of this experience. Um, I won't say for the better, but not completely destroyed, not completely damaged. And yeah. that's, and that's what Nick Nolte is. All right. Yeah. Let's see. Next question here. Okay. This kind of, I said to Rolf abandon Wade. And part of the reason I asked this is, is this a movie, an indictment of small town America? I would say no. Okay. Um, because I don't think, uh, he uh, 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 Wade is a character unto himself. You know, he, there's no, there's nobody close to being like him except his father. Yeah, but this doesn't this seem is like, to be a is... supportive town. This doesn't seem to be a pleasant town where people help each other much. I mean, this seems to be a town where everybody airs everyone's dirty laundry, and I don't know. To me, all right. Here's what I want to say about Wade in general. I think, unfortunately, there are too many Wades in the world, and what I mean by that is. Men specifically, damaged men, who are just down a path of self-destruction, who will never pull out of it. And I think in America right now, we're, we're starting to see it more and more. I, I really wonder who Wade would be today, right? Would he be somebody storming the Capitol building, like <laughs> blaming the government for his troubles, right? Quite possibly, quite you possibly. Know, and, and that's part of the thing. I, I, but don't forget the element of him inheriting it directly from his father, oh, not no, necessarily from the no town question. or the environment. But, but I wonder, the do father. these environments lend themselves 
to these types of dysfunctional families. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, that, that's a broad question. It from is a this, broad question. From the context of the movie, I, I don't think that's uh, I don't think it's a fair deduction. Yeah. Uh, because you know other members of of the society seem to function fairly well. Keep on, I'm not from a small town. I'm essentially what is from the city. I, I grew up in a, in a town right outside of Washington D.C. Um, but this is a grim portrayal of small town America. This is this, you say he's he's one into himself, but all the side characters in this movie, they're not great people. With the exception of Sissy Spacek, they're not particularly. All they do is kick Wade when he's down. I mean, it's literally at one point in a bar, some guy is recounting a terrible experience that happened to Wade as a child in in, in his childhood, right in front of Wade, but to other people for amusement. For amusement. For amusement yes. I can't imagine ever doing that to anybody. I mean, it's. It's pretty brutal. And then at one point, Wade's boss says, who's a foreigner, who he says, I like small towns. Um, everybody knows like everyone. Like, or he says, he says, everyone knows everyone's dirty business or something like that. Like he enjoys that aspect of it. I, I thought it, you know, I didn't think this was the uh, the best look for a small town. All right. No, it, it's not. It's not uh, Thornton Wilder territory. Definitely. Okay. Next question. Um, is this Nick Nolte's finest role? I can't think of anything, uh, you know, significantly better. He was fantastic mm. in the, yeah, yeah. I, I could go along with that. Yeah, I'm going with a big yes. I also think uh, I watched James Coburn's um, Academy Award speech the other day, and apparently this movie was co-produced by Nick Nolte. I mean, I think Nick Nolte had a very strong part in getting this movie made because I think he probably knew he could play this role like nobody else. I mean, this is Nick Nolte. I love. I think he's a, such a strange actor. His voice is odd. His energy is odd. You don't know. You know, they tried to make him a romantic leading man in The Prince of Tides. But at the same time, that whole movie's about going through trauma. I, I'm not sure anyone does trauma like Nick Nolte. <laughs> no, that that's true. Uh, there's a fantastic performance he gave. And it's, it's a, sort of a comic performance in North Dallas 40, where he basically plays a traumatized old football player. He's yeah. trying to hang on. And he, he's really good, but you can tell physically he's beaten up. The game has beaten him up on this interior. Now, this is a raucous comedy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he still brings this incredible edge that's different than anybody else in the movie. Have you ever noticed that nobody attempts to do Nick Nolte? Nick Nolte is one of a kind. There's it's a- funny, because he, he doesn't... I haven't seen a lot of movies where he's tried foreign accents. I think yeah. he, he's, he has. But um, his voice is a foreign accent. It's so strange. <laughs> he, he he has a range that you usually associate with people who try different accents. Yeah, you know. Yeah, he always has the same accent. Yet he does have an incredible range. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Okay, so here was here was my um. Let's do bad pitches. All right. Okay. Here's my bad pitch for for this movie. It's Don Quixote meets Fargo. Oh, you robbed me halfway. Oh, really? Okay, <laughs> yeah. so I'm sure Fargo's in yours. Then. It had to be. Yeah, yeah you exactly. know it had to be. Now, to be fair, Don Quixote <laughs> is an admirable character. I'm not saying Nick Nolte is, but Nick Nolte is chasing after something that just is not there. And you could either say it's the murder mystery or you could say it's happiness. But whatever he's going after, he's not going to get it. And he becomes more and more disillusioned from society. Steve, what's your, uh, what's your bad pitch? My bad pitch uh, was uh, Oedipus Rex. Oh. <laughs> uh, meets Fargo because you know, like that one he does, although he doesn't sleep with his mother. Yeah, yeah well, let's, let's just I'm, leave it there. I'm going to leave it, it there. there. That could be a potentially a spoiler. Well, I was trying to think of movies... I wanted to get a, a, a you know a bad pitch movie a successful movie about a man an adult man 
and a terrible relationship with his father. Yeah. And nothing, I couldn't think of anything that comes to mind. I had uh, nothing in common with Tom Hanks and Jackie Gleason. There's Rush, I guess. Or not, no, excuse me, not Rush. That's a great movie. Um, I meant a Shine with Jeffrey Rush. Well, I didn't see that as, as a... His fa- Oh, man. The father I, in Shine's a terrible, I mean, just an abusive... Hmm. I, I got to see that movie again. I saw it the first time, and all I could remember is Jeffrey Rush's performance. I, Armin Mueller-Stahl, I think, was I played his dad. But also, you know, as you know, and I'll just reveal to the listeners, I have I had a, a recently deceased schizophrenic uncle who was a genius who had a very demanding father, my grandfather. So when I watched that movie Shine, um, it reminds me a lot of my dad's brother and my dad's father. So that's partly what I'm coloring it with. Uh. Anyways, uh, I could probably come up with a better pitch if I, I but I, I, I couldn't. I couldn't think yeah. of, and that tells me that um, movies about, you know, brutal dads and their yeah. sons don't often get made. You, you do see, yeah. you know, the, the mother-daughter yeah. dynamic. Right. Uh, that's, you know, everything from uh, Mommy the Joy Dearest. Club, <laughs> Mommy Dearest, Terms of Endearment, yeah, uh, Ordinary right. People with the Mother and the Son. But you don't see a lot of father-son and maybe it should be explored it absolutely should be explored yeah. you could argue that like much of the world's problems are simply the dynamics between father and son and the way that we raise our sons you know it's depicted a lot in movies but it's usually depicted as the father being the minor character who's the impetus for the the yeah. guy to become a great coach or yeah, a great exactly. football player it's or always like romanticized that. gotta it's do not my father the, proud yes it's not the center of the movie yeah we're not talking about like basically men passing on toxic care i hate using the word toxic because it makes me sound like part of the the new wave of everything but Mm. the truth is whatever you want to call it the the characteristics of men that drive them to destroy themselves in their communities yeah right and i think that should be explored more often well i mean women don't really make actual war on each other like violent physical war (laughs) that is the game of men now women would would dispute you in some some degree as a i, I know what you mean by physical war but i mean uh, actual war i don't mean cycle uh-huh. i don't mean war as a synonym for something else right, right i mean right. war <laughs> you know what i mean well they're about to get they're about to get their shot let's see how they do okay so <laughs> so anyways um any any final thoughts on this movie before we move on uh this this movie's mm. a slap in the face it's a bracing yeah. slap in the face and it, it's it's not an easy movie to watch, but it's definitely worth watching. Yeah, for me, this was a movie I've always recommended to people. It's incredibly powerful. And I always, I just have such an admiration for the tightly constructed film. Small, tight, no fat, powerful scenes, great cinematography, doing so much with so little. I mean, it's really my favorite kind of movie, so to speak, where they're getting right to the heart of something. It can be uplifting or it can be grim, but I love movies where they're not tr- where where they're not trying to be an adventure film or an action film just just a tightly constructed little drama. This I'm, movie pulls you in and it, yeah. it holds you as well as any any action movie will. Yeah. But it is is a horror show. <laughs> yeah, and you'll remember it too. That's yes. the other thing. Okay. Let's move on. Let's go to our next hidden gem of 1998, Dark City. Okay. In a city on the edge of darkness. What is happening here? Why is everyone asleep? On a night that never ends. Asleep now. Who are they? John Murdoch searched for a past. They set you up with a fake identity. You lead to a future. You are the subject of their experiment. Beyond all imagination. We all are. Dark City Rated R. Now playing. Just a little preamble here. I think Dark City by this point is a pretty well-established cult classic. 
Um, it certainly was a flop when it came out. Um, but I think in recent years, people who love movies, I've met many people who love movies that will always talk about Dark City. That being said, I'll never pass up an opportunity to talk about Dark City. Um, Steve, you've already done the stats, right? So before I... Oh, not yet. Not oh, yet. you haven't done the stats. I thought not you did them one. together. All right. No, so, no. so why don't you do the stats for Dark City first, and then I'll do the... the God, the story summary. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. Yeah. Uh, Dark City was released almost exactly a year before the wide release of Affliction. It was released in February 1998 by New Line Cinemas. It runs about 100 minutes. There is a director's cut, cut, which I have not seen, and I wish I had. A director's cut that runs uh, 111 minutes. And added, obviously, 11 minutes and some... I think it cuts down on some of the narration. Well, keep going. Yeah, yeah I probably should have. Um, the movie cost $27 million. Okay. Considerably more than Affliction. Yeah, and not um, surprisingly, by the way. It's no. a science fiction film. Yes. And it requires an awful lot of uh, special effects. It made about $27 million. $27 million, you see every dime of it. I'll, just, I'll tell you this. You yeah. see every dime of it on the screen. It was directed by uh, Alex Proyas, with a screenplay by Proyas, Len Dobbs, and David S. Goyer. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's an original story. And Apparently, David S. Goyer is a big-time filmmaker now in the superhero genre. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know, and he, I think his fingerprints are all over it because the original screenplay mm-hmm. apparently was uh, tremendously altered. Okay. Even though they, kept, they retained... And I, can, I um, can imagine where it was altered. Probably <laughs> in what I would call boss fights. Yes. Yeah, I bet you David Goyer is the one who introduced the idea of boss fights into that movie. And anyone who plays video games know what a boss fight is. Oh, I don't. I uh, I said yes. Uh, I was being a phony. What does boss fights mean? A boss fight is basically at the end of a level in a video game, you have to fight the boss of the level, which is a big, powerful villain. Okay. You know what I mean? In order to get past the level. And movies today, especially Marvel movies, action films, they're all filmed with boss fights, which is you beat up the henchman, and then you get to the real villain, and you do the boss fight which is literally a physical fight with the boss. God forbid it be anything mental. You know what I mean? John Wick. John Wick. I guess, are there boss fights in John Wick, though? Or is it, or is it just... I well, think the very John... end of the movie, he, 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 he fights the boss, right? Does he? Yeah. Okay. He, he, able, he, he very ably dispatches 60, like... 60 men in their, tw- yeah. in their 20s, yeah. but has a tough time yeah. going one-on-one with a guy like in the 60s. I like John Wick. And to me, John Wick is the boss fight. In those, like every, he's the boss that everyone else has to fight, you yeah. know? But anyways, um, yeah, so David S. Goyer, a part of this movie. Steve, more stats? No, that's, uh, th- that's it. Okay, um, all right. So let's, let's um, here's what I'll say first, and then I'll do the story. We hate the Oscars. That being said, talking about the budget of this film, I have no problem with production designers, special effects crews, right? All the all the technical hands on a movie getting recognition, even if it's with an Oscar. And if this movie wasn't nominated for any Oscars, it's a travesty that it wasn't nominated for, I don't know if it's set design or production design, but basically... Yeah, it's a combination. Yeah. Set direction, uh, yeah. Part of set the plot design. of this movie is that basically it takes place in a city that looks almost as if, a, almost as if a New York City had been taken over by the Nazis, Right, that's kind of what it looks like to me from like the nineteen you know forties, and it's always night. It's I, I don't know. I'm not an architecture uh, guy. Is it Art Deco? I mean, what is the style of the city that they present in Dark City? Yeah, I'm I'm probably thinner than you are on architecture, but it does have that forties 
uh, clean right. Art Deco style. Imagine you combined Metropolis with Gotham City, and you have Dark City. You know, you just blew my uh, my pitch. <laughs> okay, so so hold on, to it. all right. So let's do the story here. All right, God, this yes. is. Oh, I wish uh, I wish I could just contract out this job to somebody else. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna do my best. All right, so this movie starts when a man awakes in a bathtub. His name is Rufus Sewell. He's a a go a. A prosperously working English actor in real life. He's not famous, but he gets a lot of work. Rufus Sewell, I can't pronounce his name. Sewell. Yeah. 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 Anyways, he wakes up in a bathtub, and he discovers that there is a dead woman next to him in the bathtub. He gets out of the bathtub. He's naked. He can't remember a thing. He doesn't know who he is, why he's there, what's going on. And he starts wandering through a a hotel, a seedy hotel. It's nighttime. And... um. Everybody's asleep. Everybody in the hotel, the cashier, the elevator boy, everybody doesn't know what's going on. Everybody's asleep. And then at a certain point, everybody just wakes up as if they haven't been sleeping, okay? And what this, I'm, I'm going to try to not spoil this movie, right? But I will tell you what the movie tells you pretty early on, all right? Which is that basically, there is an alien species controlling a city that's always nighttime, and what they do is they put these human beings to sleep at various times and then perform experiments on them. And usually the experiments are basically giving them new memories and new identities and then seeing if, if, you, if you give a person a new memory and a new, and a new identity, if they retain some sort of core part of their persona or their or their self or are they a completely different person once you give them new memories and a new identity and the reason that the aliens do this is incredibly unclear um, <laughs> even to the very end of the movie and the main character played by rufus sewell what he discovers is a he can stay awake when everyone else goes to sleep and b he has some strange new powers that are akin to what the aliens who are controlling this city have Steve, have I done a decent enough job with this? I think you did a very good job. Okay. When, a not an easy job. When I rewatched it, the only version available to me was the director's cut. And as soon as it opened, I noticed the opening narration that basically just explained everything I said to you was gone. And I kind of missed wow. it. I kind of missed it, Steve. I kind of wish it was still there. I wish when I had when I had seen it. I don't know if I did see the original director's cut, uh-huh. although I don't know when it came out. All I know is that I, upon watching this, I didn't like it as much as I liked it the first time. But you mean the whole movie in general, not just the narration, right? Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I think the the narration gives too much away at the beginning. Yeah, absolutely, and it's very clear they they tacked it on, right? Just kind of like Blade Runner. The they idea, were afraid yeah. that people wouldn't right. uh, pick up on what was right. going on. It would be too disorienting, which is which is a terrific feeling in, in a science fiction movie. Well, look before we criticize the film because this is a podcast about getting people to watch good movies. <laughs> That's right, right? I'm not saying don't go see well, it. Let's talk about what we like about the film because the fact is we both really like this movie. Steve, why did you choose it? This movie came out about a year before The Matrix. Yeah, and that's going to be a big pop topic of discussion, but yes. keep going. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and it does have that kind of feel. A very dark, sinister, you, you don't know what you can trust. The Matrix you don't know quite what you can... clearly ripped off this movie in many ways. And that has long been the discussion surrounding this movie, which is that there's a great deal of story copyright infringement <laughs> uh, that The Matrix violated in writing their own script. There's no way around it. 
Well, you know, uh, you know, one came out about a year after the other. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they could have ripped it off, seen it, and and borrowed it. I, I'm not sure, but you're you're right. There yeah. are enough similarities yeah. to give one pause. Highly suspicious. Yes. Yeah. I I, I love this movie for the disorienting feeling it gave me. It has oh, the yeah. feel of a film noir, absolutely shot in the forties. It's very it's it's a hyper self aware film noir. But imagine you were making a hyper self aware film noir where all the actors were told to act like they were in a film noir, so that it's slightly unnatural. Does that make sense? No. <laughs> all right. All right. <laughs> Clarify. So, so, okay. So everybody in this movie. These human beings are living lives that are false memories, okay? The aliens have given them false memories. And as a result, they are all playing roles in a setting that is completely fabricated. One of the coolest parts about this movie I really rec I, I saw on the rewatch was that it's all fabricated, including the the way that people talk and act they are talking and acting precisely in a way that they have been designed to talk and act through these fake memories that have been implanted in them so imagine you convinced me right through hypnosis that i was a 1940s noir detective i may start talking like this see yeah the dame she came into my office and i knew something was up immediately right but i heard her out because she had long silky legs and a smoky voice right like <laughs> It's not natural because it's not meant to be. Does that clarify a little bit? Well, let me ask you something. Yeah. Uh, maybe this is the first question, although I, I hadn't planned on asking it. The way, there's a William Hurt character. He yeah. is a, uh, a police detective who's yeah. trying to figure out what's going on. Do you think that he is uncomfortable that the, the human he once was it retains a little bit of uncomfortableness in his role as a detective? Yeah. Does it baffle him that he, not, not, not the mystery, but yeah. the fact that he's a detective? So different people in this movie, a select few, begin to recognize something is wrong, that yeah. they are playing out a role. And that's what I mean by that. Will, I like William Hurt's performance a lot because I think he understands that his character is playing out a role he was designed to play. So it, it kind of— it, For all it, we know, he is—whatever right. uh, life that yeah. he was lifted yeah. out of— yeah. He was not, he didn't have anything to do no. with being a police detective. Imagine the plot was different, right? You would say that all these actors are doing a terrible job. <laughs> but because of the exact nature of the plot, it works perfectly, which is the performances are supposed to seem artificial because everything about the city and the lives they are living is artificial. Yes. They're designed to act that way. And the William Hurt character, who is chasing down the Rufus Sewell character, because William Hurt has been assigned the role of detective, right, begins to recognize that something is wrong. He is following in footsteps that seem preordained. He's not actually making decisions. He's just, if you just hypnotize someone and told them you're a detective now, that's how they would act. But it's not natural. And then the true self, the real id, which, by the way, just to give something away, they, supposedly these aliens, what they do is they occupy human corpses. Like they're really kind of like a weird like spider liquid creature and they they nestle or burrow into a human corpse. And once, they, once it's dead, it, once yeah, it's dead, it, it walks and around they a occupy human suit. it that way. Yeah. But their whole purpose is to find out what is the human soul, which is the idea if, if you give someone new memories and a new role in life, will they retain some sort of essence of themselves that even though they don't remember it, is their id. What, what they consider the soul, I consider the id, which is the part of yourself that you have no control over that is in fact controlling you and is the dominant factor in your personality. Yeah. 
this movie, in in a way, is kind of like um, the one with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, Total Recall? Total Recall, in the sense that he has a memory implanted. Yeah. But, and like Total Recall, it... Mm. it to my to my satisfaction, does not complete what it should have, and that is explore explore what the the, the nature of the original person was mm-hmm. versus the implant. You yeah. know, yeah. I, I wish it had delved further into that. They do have my favorite line. I'm going to use it a little earlier. Yeah, go for it. Um, uh, the the uh, William Hurt character, the detective, yeah, is investigating the scene. He has a, a flunky lieutenant. And the flunky lieutenant just knows that this guy, played uh, by Rufus Sewell, whose name is John Murdoch, uh, believes that Murdoch is the killer. But he also knows that there's a broken bowl, a fishbowl, yeah. in which was a goldfish. Yeah. And now the goldfish is swimming in a uh, tub of sink, water. or tub, it, tub, a of, tub of water. Yeah. And then uh, after this his flunky declares this guy um, the murderer, William Hurt says, So, Hesselbeck, what kind of killer do you think stops to save a dying fish? And that is yeah. where they're exploring that yeah. nature. Yeah. He's not a killer because yeah. if he was, a killer wouldn't care about the goldfish. He wouldn't way, pick it, it up and put that it in. Is psych- psychologically incorrect. If anyone watched The Sopranos, they would know and find out because The Sopranos is some of the finest like writing of therapy and psychoanalysis of anything ever. And I think they probably did their research. But you would find out that sociopaths who can have feel no emotions for humans also have. Uh, often have an outsized, an outsized um, dealing deal of emotions towards animals. A little, little extra, uh, so, maybe compensating compensation. Yeah. So uh, the point uh, is, you can be a killer for... and love your uh-huh. dog. Well, uh, for the purposes of yeah. this universe, for the purposes I, I think of this it's movie, merely, yeah, exactly. and, and and it also works psychologically that uh, it's it's unlikely that he is yeah. in nature a killer. That's right. And I really like that. Yeah. Uh, I just wish they'd explored it more. Just like I wish they'd explored it more in in that uh, the Schwarzenegger movie. Yeah, I mean, look, this movie for starters, just visually, I just have to say the design of this movie is it fantastic. blows you away. It blows <laughs> you away, even now that it's been over twenty years. Right. the The design of this movie is breathtaking, and it has a real. Um, what's his name, Terry Gilliam quality to it. Like the sets, it really kind of looks like Brazil. And in fact, when you read about this movie, you find out that the director has all sorts of cinematic references in this film. And not only cinematic, but also references to famous manga comics or manga. I, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing it, but the um, the Japanese form of comic books that a lot of people love. I mean, he's just, he's, there is such a fine and classy attention to detail in this movie that for some of the script deficiencies, and I think that 99% of the problems in this movie are script deficiencies, there is a filmmaking technique and skill in this movie that is undeniable and breathtaking. And, um, you know, beyond just the architecture of the city and the design of the clothing and all that, the aliens in the movie are fascinating to look at. They are pale, bald, they wear these gothic black suits, they're like a combination of a 1940s G-man, you know, like a sort of a government, you know, man, like, and a, and a weird gothic alien, and they, and you know, you give your favorite line, and I have two favorite lines, and I'll just spoil one of them now, which is, when they're chasing down uh, Rufus Sewell's character, Murdoch, and Murdoch discovers he has some powers and he kills one of the one of the aliens, the other aliens will, will respond by going, Poor, poor 
Mr. Hand. <laughs> With not a great deal of yeah. compassion. Yeah. And, and all the aliens, in another wonderful little detail, the aliens' names are just random inanimate objects and body parts. There's Mr. Hand, Mr. Book, like Mr. Train. <laughs> I love it. I cannot... My, my friends and I for years would say things like, Paw, paw. Mr. Book. <laughs> it's just, wow. It's just so quotable. I, I really, for me, the most enjoyable part of watching this movie is everything with the aliens. They are just fascinating to look at. They are. Except they don't have that one singular character that stands out like in The Matrix. They kind of uh, do. Mr. Smith is they, it? They kind of... It's I, actually Mr. Hand is Mr. The, the guy who... So one of the aliens, what he does is they're trying to find Murdoch because they can't because he's the one human they can't control. So this alien, Mr. Hand, he implants himself with the memories that Murdoch has been implanted with. And as a result, he becomes not only more attuned to finding out where Murdoch's going to go because he shares the same artificial memories that Murdoch has... But he also starts to become more human because he's had these memories implanted in him. And one of the last thing that happened to Murdoch before he kind of woke up was they were trying to implant Murdoch with the memories that he's a serial killer, right? He's not actually a serial killer, but they're, they're decided that for their experimentations, they're going to make this guy a serial killer. And instead, they give that memory to the alien. And what happens to the alien? He becomes a serial killer. He does kill that uh, yeah. that young uh, a young lady starts, um, in, the, in the, the same memory, fashion that his memory The memories dictates. are more effective yeah. on him than they yeah. were on Murdoch. It's I don't know I liked it. I like <laughs> so I think that character, the one who's really hunting down um, Murdoch, who by the way I mis- I mis- I mistook for Brad Dorif because he looks and sounds like Brad Dorif, the guy from. Couldn't Brad Dorf do a great job on this? Yeah, he, he, I mean, that guy's literally a low-rent Brad Dorf. He sounds like him, and he looks like him. I had to look it up to find out it wasn't him. I thought he was a good Mr. Smith character. My problem is it, it, it became hard because they look so much alike yeah. that um, I had a hard time keeping track of who was who. And the the guy who uh, I guess it's the Mister Hand is it? Mister Hand is the one hunting him. Mister mm-hmm. Book is the head alien played by Ian Richardson, who is the original villain of the British miniseries House of Cards. Which, if you haven't seen the original House of Cards, is fantastic. Well, I recognize him now. Now, now I'm not yeah. talking about the older guy. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking, talking about, about the Mr. older Book. guy. Yeah. Well, Mister Hand, I don't know. I, I didn't find him distinctive enough. Well, yeah, uh, they, they all have a monochromatic look to them. Yeah, they're yeah, all pale and, white, you know. Right, and 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 Mr. Smith and I keep wanting to compare it to uh, the Matrix, and if it did steal the story, I think it did a better job. I know I, I oh, I'm the, the one Matrix? who picked Dark. Yeah. Uh, I'm the one who picked uh, Dark City, mm-hmm. and here I am trashing it. I saw all these flaws that I didn't see before, but this movie is a mind bender. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating to watch. The production design is amazing. Yeah, it really is. Uh, the special effects for for a paltry twenty seven million, yeah, is impressive, and it, it is a tight little uh, uh, you know storytelling. I think the reason exercise. that the people who love Dark City will always sort of compare it more favorably to the Matrix is that it's more cinematic, and what I mean by that is that. It's taking all its cues from sort of like 1940s and 1950s noir cinema history with a bit of science fiction blended in there. And The Matrix is really taking tons of its cues from Japanese cinema that people aren't um, acquainted with. And in fact, I'm just going to do the pitch right now, the bad pitch. My bad pitch for Dark City is actually what I think the Wachowski 
sisters like i don't know what to tell you like at the moment at no it's at the moment they're sisters <laughs> but brothers at the time back then yeah. yeah the wachowski brothers i think here's what they pitched uh to a to a studio okay our movie <laughs> is um dark city meets john woo that that is my pitch for Dark City because we ended up getting that bad pitch in the Matrix. I, I just can't. That's 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 the only way I could think to put it. Because obviously, any bad pitch you would, if you included the Matrix in your bad pitch, in some ways you're doing a disservice to Dark City because Dark City came out first. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you you couldn't, and you yeah. simply couldn't do it. Uh, I, the reason I like I prefer uh, the Matrix is I think the characters are deeper and richer and more authentic. And I know the, the immediate response, of course, yeah. is uh, the reason the characters yeah. aren't deeper here is because by necessity they are synthetic. That's right. right? Yeah. You know. Um, but an audience needs something to cling to. Rufus uh, Sewell. You, I think you could have replaced him with all, except for his eyes, yeah. which are the perfect eyes for this character, wide-eyed, desperate, trying to comprehend everything. Yeah. I, I think this could have been played by almost anybody. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. I think most, I mean, yeah, I do think the character, look, it's hard. I always have a problem with cerebral movies. I love cerebral movies, but I think you've got to get people to care. And if you can't get people to care, you have to make them so awestruck by the film that caring for the characters doesn't matter. This is Stanley Kubrick's great saving grace, is that for what he doesn't care about his characters, you're so awestruck by his movies that you don't have to actually be emotionally invested in his characters. But you have, but Stanley Kubrick's one of a kind. Yes. You know what I mean? Not many people can pull that off, and when people try to, they don't pull it off. Well, this movie does pull it off. It does make yes. you so awestruck about yeah. the mechanics of the, of, the, the, of the story. Yeah. And the, the brilliant visuals. Yeah. The stunning visuals. I, I just think you get both with The Matrix. I really yeah, do. Yeah, I, I agree too. The Matrix, yeah. uh, you care more about the characters, and by the end, you are really gripped, uh, hoping they make it out. Mm. Now, let's address the 500-pound elephant in the room, and it's Kiefer Sutherland. Um, <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland is in this movie. He plays a disfigured... Uh, I'm going to call him Brain Doctor, because they don't actually <laughs> say what he is, right? That the aliens are in are using to basically create these memories and imprint everything. So he's a human. He knows exactly what's going on, and he is not subject to the alien's experimentation, so we think, because they are using him uh, because he says he understands the human mind better than they ever could. It is a terrible performance. <laughs> First of all, let me just give One you... of my questions... All right, yeah. let me give you yeah. my, my, my uh, question. What is it with uh, Keither Sutherland's breathing technique? Oh my. So this is what we got to talk about. The most glaring flaw in this movie is that Keither Sutherland talks like this throughout the whole movie. <laughs> I mean, it is just so annoying. And look, he's... Oh, here's what I'll say. If Kiefer Sutherland is the one that uh, said, hey, I have an idea, let's do this, the director is just as much to blame for, for letting him do it, it. for letting yes. him do it. Yes. Now, it could be the opposite. The director could have said, no, I want you to talk this way, but it is terrible. It is just like... <sighs> He's the only human who is aware of what's going on. Yeah. He sounds the least authentically human. In yeah. fact, this is kind of a breathy 
performance you might want to attribute to uh, the villains. Yeah. You know, the, these, oh, what, what are they called? The, uh, I don't the, remember the, what the they're aliens. called. The aliens. Yeah. You would the other, think. They're called the strangers. The strangers. Good that's name, right. he, he calls them the strangers. Uh, the, yeah. the Kiefer Sutherland Because he's the narrator in yes. the version that we both originally watched. Right, right. Yeah. Um, you would expect some sort of clumsy sort of uh, a, biz, a bit of business yeah. like that. And sometimes actors, when they're trying to be original, and I think he was just trying to get some sort of original take, yeah. you know, he, he erred. Sometimes it works. Sometimes that kind of the kind of yeah. um, breath take uh, t- taking a breath cadence worked for, for a whole career for Alan Rickman. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know. But he did it subtly. But, but there's also a big he difference. Did it brilliantly, uh, Alan Rickman's and, an actor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to call Kiefer Sutherland never was there. Uh, su- I'm a general believer that most actors who make it in Hollywood are the best of the best. I really do believe that. Even people who maybe only got their shot because they were handsome or physically beautiful. There's still a million handsome and physically beautiful people trying to make it in Hollywood who have no talent. I'm usually pretty forgiving of actors in Hollywood because I do, I've seen enough things to recognize talent and real acting chops. Not with Kiefer Sutherland. (laughs) How the hell he made it is a mystery beyond me. Well, his father was a very famous actor. But so are a lot of people, you know, there's a... Even some of the the spawn of great actors have some decent acting chops. He ain't one of them. I guess if, if this podcast ever blows up, uh, we will not be. He will not be a guest on this show. I don't think so. I don't think yeah. so. Oh my god! I, I, I you know what? I, I he was cred. He was sort of credible in Stand by Me in a very yeah. small, brief, well directed role. role. Easy role to play. True. Yeah. And I think he was he was uh, convincing in the show Twenty Four, but that was a grinded out kind of thing. Yeah, and I never. 20- I never watched. I never watched Tony. He, he, he was he was very uh, he, he was authentic in the terms of, of that show. Yeah, he the, wasn't. But he yeah. wasn't doing the great worst. Acting. The worst thing Donald Sutherland ever did was give us Kiefer Sutherland. <laughs> you know, Donald, Donald Sutherland, one of those great actors who he never seemed to. He never became a star, so to speak, and he never got the type of prestigious recognition that even someone like James Colburn got. You know, it's funny. He just, uh, Sutherland just got uh, profiled by 60 Minutes. Oh, good. Last year. Yeah. By the way, what was James Colburn ever in was before Affliction? Because I keep confusing oh, him with Jason. Escape. And, I confuse and, him uh, with Jason Robards all the oh, time. My, oh, yeah. Robards. Is a real actor. An act, infinitely yeah. better actor yeah. than Colburn, although I like Colburn. Well, who's Colburn in The Great Escape? I've um, seen that movie. Who is he? He he played the uh, he was basically by himself and he wasn't yeah. he didn't play an American either huh. and he's one of the very few oh who is escapes. he the digger no no the no, digger no, no, no. is what's his name Charles Bronson Charles Bronson and his friend who Bron- I just saw yeah. in a movie uh, uh, recently uh, he he escapes I think to Switzerland okay what else did he do uh, he, he was also in um, uh, the Magnificent Seven he played the guy with the knife I gotta make an admission I've never seen it ah. Yeah. So is he a? He's not like he was not an overdue Oscar. He, it was just one of these. It was <laughs> just would, one of these things. He never got nominated because he never really did anything that was worthy of. Yeah. He's a star. Yeah, and he's pretty good at being a star. He made the Our Man Flint movies, which okay. is an American ripoff of the Bond movies in the sixties. Okay, uh, he, he he's okay. He, yeah, he's all right. He's not a great actor. Anyways, back to Dark City. Yes, um, one thing I think is really important to point out about this movie is, you know, film criticism. I can't remember if it was Pauline Kale who somebody said this about film criticism. Oh, you know what? No, it might have been Kale, but it was also from the movie Ratatouille, okay. uh, which has one of the great explanations of what criticism can really do. Right. Generally speaking, most film critics put nothing on the line. They 
critique what people um, put their heart and soul into. And at the end of the day, their opinion matters very little. Um, that being said, one of the few things they can do is highlight something. If, if a critic has some sort of prestige or, or name recognition, they can highlight a work that other people may not know about and promote it. Um, and that's what Ratatouille is about. And that's sort of what they put something on the line, which is by saying, I like this thing that nobody knows about. And if people don't like it, they lose credibility, right? Yes. Um, Roger Ebert is largely responsible for whatever success this movie has had in years. Roger Ebert was a huge proponent of this movie. He was a proponent of it when it came out. He put it on his list of, I think he made it either his number one or number two best movies of the year. And then he put it very high up on his list of the best movies of the decade. He was a consistent um, promoter of this film. You know, even... There's a temptation to like smaller movies that don't do well versus yeah, the big movies. Sure. But I, I have no qualms in saying I think The Matrix is better. Even though it may appear that I, I have more vulgar taste, I think it's a better movie. This movie is still damn good. And it's got an, an originality to it, yeah. an integrity to it yeah. that, that uh, The Matrix doesn't have. Absolutely. I think this movie is richer than The Matrix and has more integrity to it. I'm just not sure it's as gripping. It, it has a detail. The cars. Yeah. yeah. The cars. I, I. This is the kind of movie you watch every square inch of the frame. Yeah. You look, for the, you look at the cars, and I saw some that looked like they were from the 40s, and I saw a VW uh, a bug from yeah, the yeah, 60s. Yeah. Yeah. And then I saw the kind of the cars that I remember as right. a kid from, from uh, the, the mid-60s. Yeah. And it's very disorienting because you can't place where this is. If you see this movie, please see the director's cut because if, yeah. if there's no narration at the beginning, this will hit you by surprise, except if you're listening to this, we've already given it away. Sorry. No, I mean, it's okay because <laughs> they, they give it away pretty early. And besides, we haven't given away everything. There's there's more plot developments in this movie that we're not going to talk about. Yes. Um, anyways, why don't you hit me up with your questions, the ones you haven't asked. All right. We kind of touched on this. What did you think of the villain's pretext for this elaborate setup? Now, here's another difference between this and The Matrix. The Matrix makes it a dead clear. Mm-hmm. Couldn't be easier. Humans are batteries. They're yeah. copper tops. Yeah. They need them. I I, I didn't grasp why it was important for them to run these, um, basically, what are social experiments. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, this is what social... They are... The villains are like sociologists, only instead of observing what happens, they make the thing happen. You yeah. know? Yeah. It was as if, as if sociologists decided to, you know, well, let me, let me take this baby out here, do the, the, do the trading places thing, mm-hmm. take this baby in this, in this circumstance, see how he grows up. What did you think of the explanation, and did it, did it harm, uh, you know, your enjoyment? It never worked. The explanation of what the aliens are trying to get at never works. Like, why they will survive by finding out what the human soul is makes no sense. I tried to make sense of it on the rewatch. Didn't make sense to me. Doesn't hinder my enjoyment of the movie because I recognize that the movie's weakest um, element is its script. It just is, unfortunately. Yeah, well, that that brings me to uh, the sort of the next question. Uh, did this movie meet the suspension of disbelief burden? Absolutely, absolutely, one hundred percent. The first two, so first couple of times I saw this movie, it absolutely did. Yeah, this isn't a movie. If you're thinking intensely about this movie, it's a good thing. You just can't get caught up on the stuff that doesn't really matter. Yeah, look, just enjoy this movie. Sometimes a fine wine does not have to be analyzed. 
Okay. You know, you don't have to wonder where the grapes came <laughs> from or how long it's aged. If it tastes good going down, there's nothing wrong with that. If there's point one point zero 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 one part uh, of insect matter in it, yeah. who cares? That's what I think, <laughs> you right? know? You'll never know. Like, You'll never know a, the difference. Imagine a great wine that was made in, like, the Napa <laughs> Valley, which I guess wine snobs are like, oh, an American wine. There ain't nothing wrong with it. Absolutely. All right. Which uh, you uh, uh, absolutely. Uh, they do try to explain... When they get the character, John Murdoch, they capture him near the end of the movie. And yeah. what they decide to do is I think they try to put their consciousness into his yeah, body it, or extract his soul and put it, I don't know. You know what insulted me more in this movie than anything else was What's the that? boss fight. They had a boss fight. <laughs> and that made me mad. I hate boss fights. You know what? Uh... I think they can be done well, but this one wasn't done terribly no. well. This was a movie that was really getting by on its strengths, knowing what it was, which was mood, atmosphere, tension. And then they just decide to include a sort of Marvel movie-style boss fight at the end, which I did not appreciate. That was the mm. only thing that I actually hurt my enjoyment of the film. All the other things, including Kiefer Sutherland, maybe are weaknesses— uh, like Kiefer Sutherland's a glaring weakness. It doesn't really hurt my enjoyment of the film. I kind of recognize him for what he's doing here. It's kind of it's almost <laughs> enjoyably comical. The boss fight bothered me. The boss fight it lacks integrity. It's the only yeah. part of the movie that lacks integrity. Even what Kiefer Sutherland is doing, while it stinks, has integrity <laughs> to it because it's purposeful. Yes, he he is trying to stand out. Yeah. Right. Beyond the other characters. Uh, we've kind of touched on some of my questions. Uh, what did you think about the narration? I think we both... Uh, not, I not missed too, it. You missed it. Now, see, I didn't like it because I thought it was too... Like like uh, yeah. our last movie, I thought it was a little too explicit. Yeah, no, it's definitely too explicit. I think that... I just enjoy it for some yeah. reason. I just like that narration. I don't <laughs> I don't actually think it's a good narration. I just like it. I can't... I don't know what else to say. I, I think it gives off that... Corner, the whole B-movie vibe, which is something I really love about this film, I think... Uh-huh goes hand in hand with that narration yeah the, the, the sets are just amazing yeah. and and when you say the b-movie vibe everything is grimy yeah. you know it, it, it costs a lot of money to, to make things look yeah. that seedy yeah <laughs> <You know>? absolutely <laughs> uh last question i think we kind of touched on this the point of this movie seems to be that we are not necessarily the people we are programmed to be mm-hmm. so why spend so little time on john murdoch's character there's a there's a couple there, there's only two yeah. scenes. The goldfish scene is one of the yeah. scenes that kind of delves interestingly into this yeah. point. And there's another scene that kind of threw me for a loop, and that's when he's talking to Jennifer Connelly. A young Jennifer Connelly is in this movie about yeah. two years before she did A Beautiful Mind, and he and she is his wife, mm-hmm. or you no, know they've been told to think they're right. their spouses. Right. And so, they're supposed to be in love. Here's that's my, the thing. Here's my problem with that question. Nobody asks who Neo was. Before he figured out the Matrix was a thing, right? Nobody wondered about Neo's childhood, who were his parents, who, you know, what what was he doing in his life? It was all fabricated, and he knew it, and his life only began once he got out of it. But there's a difference. There's a difference. The only thing that was fabricated about Neo was his environment. His mind, his self, wasn't fabricated. This is entirely, this is the exact opposite. Well, so here's my my problem with the movie Uh in general, which lends itself to the boss fight. The movie focuses too much on... Murdoch is the one, the special one, the one with powers rather than an explana- an exploration of of basically who he is inside, his soul, his id, right? The whole thing they're looking for is like is there a part of you that no matter what goes on, uh 
externally will always remain intact and they do not explore that 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 is essentially the question that yeah. i had the, the only other question where they try to even uh, yeah. flirt around the edge, edges with this is when they talk about that they're being in love what? and she yeah. says to him yeah. he tries to convince her you know we we may have never met before yeah. yesterday yeah. and yet you think that we've been in love since childhood or, or whenever and she says something like, um, this is something, I love you. This is something you can't fake. Well, and news, he says, yes, I news, agree. Newsflash, Steve. Yeah. Uh, human beings have a Messiah complex. <laughs> we love Messiahs. We're always looking for the next Messiah, including in movies, <laughs> books. My favorite book ever is Dune, but guess what? There's a Messiah in that, mo- in that book. Like, there's, there's too many damn Messiahs in, in <laughs> fiction. Like, that's all I got to say. Too many chosen ones. Too many yeah. special people who, who are different from the rest. Any sense that he develops this talent called no. cu- is tuning? I think tuning. it's called tuning. Yeah, there's no explanation no. for it or why he achieves, and he doesn't. He doesn't even need would have been, to. Would have been much better if it was just a fluke. That just whatever they were trying to do doesn't work on him, or that he just simply outwits them. He, he finds yeah. a clever way out yeah. of situations. Law, human, uh, yeah. he has he uses human intelligence to I'm outwit them. Much more interested in ordinary people. Um, who basically, you know, have moments that anyone can achieve if they really set their mind to it, Mm -hmm. then the notion that people are pre-selected for greatness, and if you're not one of them, just forget about it. Yeah, also, it's a very uh, un-American principle, really an un-American principle. But we're obsessed with that all over the world, Mm -hmm. from religions to just basic things. How many people love, uh, how many Americans just adore the royal family and watch with every move what they do? But that's our... and that's also... Uh, I thought you were being sarcastic, but I was going to say, no, for no. us, that's the president. You know, our royal family is the first family. Unfortunately, it's become, uh, yeah. it's become that. Uh, there, there's too many examples, even from the beginning, of yeah. us, you know, uh, somebody in ha- having a family line. We have 300 million yeah. Americans. Yeah. Don't tell well, me that this we, person's We don't obsess son. over the royal family anywhere near to the degree that England does. Yeah. You know what I mean? But don't... I mean, don't... But, you know, I, th- th- I still think there are huge differences, and... and I'm not entirely appalled, but I just I can't get this idea of inherited power. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I hate, I hate Harry Potter for that yeah, reason. Somebody should make a great movie attacking everywhere. the Harry Potter it is, concept. You know what is the best example of this not occurring? Is the Lord of the Rings trilogy. The wonderful thing about the Lord of the Rings trilogy is that the, the hobbits are the only ones who can be trusted with the ring because they're so ordinary, they're so decent, their humility is so strong, and they have no notion that they are chosen for anything, that they are the only ones who can be trusted with the power of the ring because everyone else has a notion of their predetermined greatness. That That's a terrific point. Plus, uh, Aragon, uh, he, he's yeah. ordained to be the king, but... Yeah. He starts very low. He, he doesn't even accept right. it until he's earned his way That's up. That's right. And yeah. Aragorn will not accept the ring. Even yep. he knows that he, uh. he's, not, he's too susceptible to its power. He has mm-hmm. too much of an ego, right, to responsibly hold this, this weapon of doom and resist its evil temptations to, you know, make you all powerful. So, yeah, even my favorite book ever, Dune, is uh, guilty of the Messiah thing. And then eventually Dune becomes about um, Messiah's you should never follow messiahs. Um, mm-hmm. That becomes what the Dune series is about, but you wouldn't know that if you only read the first book. But yeah, the Harry Potters, the Dunes, the the Matrixes, also there are too many things where where somebody achieves greatness because they were pre-selected. Unearned. It's unearned. unearned it's garbage. Yes. It's because we all want to be saved and we don't want to do any of the work ourselves. We just hope someone else will get pre-selected to do it for us. <laughs> or worse... 
we hope that we can achieve that without working for it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, which yeah. I think oh, I was pre-selected. <laughs> yes, I was. I was ordained. Let's get away from that. Okay. Look, I I uh, I love Dark City yeah. for all its flaws. Yeah, me too. But I would strongly suggest trying to find the director's cut. Okay, I say it doesn't matter. <laughs> All right, any other questions before you're Oh, wait a minute. Wait. Oh, wait. Okay. you got to do the, uh, the the pitch. Originally, I very unoriginally said that this movie should be called the Ma- uh, my my pitch is The Matrix meets Batman, but I've got a better one. Okay. I thought about it while I was talking with you. Oh, good. Angel Heart meets Batman. Now, oh my god, now we have to t- now we got to explain Angel Heart for god's sakes. That'll be in a future episode, yeah. but it is all about somebody who's who's trying to find out who he is, right? And, and has his his memory has yeah. been supplanted. But and anyway. Batman, because the city looks like Gotham, it looks just like Gotham, only in a way more mysterious, right, even so the, more mysterious. Just a little tangent here. Tim Burton's Tim Burton's. Yeah, no. So it doesn't uh, look like Tim Burton's Gotham. Tim Burton's Gotham, which is the original sort of look of Gotham from the comics, is Gothic, which means Gothic architecture, which right. means old, which means not Art Deco. Okay. Batman recently, because of Christopher Nolan, has taken on the modern metropolitan metropolis skyscrapers look. Very realistic, right? Yeah, very, but it's uh, it's really meant to look like kind of Brooklyn, like like old school New York. Um, and that's why I say it's metropolis. If you look at the old Superman uh, cartoon from the '40s or '30s, where it's from. You know, this looks like that, only yes. dark, only nighttime all the time. So the only thing about this it looks like Gotham is that it's night, and it's mm-hmm. dark, and it's grim-looking, but the architecture is all Superman. It's all uh, Metropolis. Yeah, I, th- I think the architecture, uh, in spirit, it's Gothic, but it's definitely, like you said, Art Deco yeah. uh, from the four- 30s, right. 40s kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Steve, uh, this was a fun one. I was really glad that we did these two. I think these are two movies that are absolutely need to be talked about um, yeah you, you don't have to love every aspect no. not every movie is going to be near perfect like yeah. uh, the lives of others that's not, right they're not all going to be you know right uh, you know so be- before i let you go um we're going to end this podcast not here but in fact i want to tell you guys um i got a good friend from college named sean jones and he was listening to our episode on dead ringers and i thought to myself i think i even said in that episode that dead ringers was probably going to be the most effed up movie that we were ever going to talk about <laughs> the most just degenerate sort of wild uh, adventure dark just ridiculous movie and my friend sean jones who's my best bud from college he contacted me and he said look dude I got one better for you. Let me come on as a special guest correspondent, and I want to talk about this other movie called Possession. So Steve and I, we're going to wrap up our conversation here, but hang around if you want to hear my buddy Sean talk about one of the most wild movies I've ever seen in my life. Just one of the craziest. And Steve, I recommend you seeing it, but I'm you, a little scared to but see if you it wanna, now. If it's, if it's if worse, you, if you want to punch me in the face after you see it, um, that's fine. But, we're not talking human centipede, right? <laughs> oh boy, we're coming close. Um, Yikes. But, but the fact of the matter is, if you liked Dead Ringers, there's no uh-huh. reason to not like this movie. So, guys, hang around. There's a bonus segment on this uh, podcast where I'm going to talk to my friend Sean Jones, and we're going to do the movie Possession. Steve, it was good to talk to you. Awesome. Enjoy. Yep. Okay, so now we are doing a special segment with my old friend and college buddy, uh, Sean Jones. See, when we did um, Steve's movie, 
Dead Ringers, which I thought was probably the strangest and most fucked up movie that we could possibly do on this podcast, my friend Sean Jones, who listens, contacted me, and he said that he could one-up Steve in the fucked up, uh, deranged movie uh, list of hidden gems. So he chose a movie called Possession. Sean, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing great, Sam. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for being here. Um, You know, this was a, uh, I gotta say, you know, this was a skillfully made movie, this movie Possession, but it was a fucking tough hang, dude. I I don't know if I've ever seen horror and um, and tragedy uh, so artfully blended, you know, to such devastating effect. It was kind of like if you had combined Poltergeist with Schindler's List. Um, all right, so for starters, let's talk a little bit about Possession, just so that people can understand uh, what we're talking about here. Possession was a movie made in 1981 it's considered a psychological horror drama so sort of think either low rent david cronenberg or high rent david cronenberg it might be actually classier than david cronenberg because it's european it was directed by someone and i'm going to butcher his name andre zolowski and it stars a woman who i've never heard of before named isabel ajani and sam uh, neil i think it's ajani it's very ajani yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that, that's fair. Um, Isabel Ajani and Sam Neill from Jurassic Park fame. Sean, give us a little brief synopsis of what this movie's about the best you can. By the way, people, this is going to have spoilers. This movie is too fucked up to uh, not reveal spoilers. Like, we can't, we cannot possibly accurately uh, talk about this movie without explaining exactly what happens in it. So, Sean, give us a little brief synopsis of the movie. I'm going to do the uh, the one-minute timer on you, see how you like it. I'm so sick of doing these these uh, these ex- these summaries of movies anyways. I want to see how you do on it. And okay. if you're really good on it, I might have you just uh, summarize all our movies and then tell me why you picked this movie. Why the hell do you even like this movie? Because this is not a movie I ever would have thought in my life to watch. Okay, um, I think it's just proper to lead off with first that just for anybody that's listening and wants to maybe watch this movie blind, there is a domestic abuse scene. It's not super graphic, but it's very it's explicit. So just getting that out of the way, that that is in the movie. Sorry, but, I don't want to cut you off, but to be fair, I found, maybe this says more about me, but like that was one of the less disturbing parts to watch. I find it in a movie full of disturbing shit. Maybe that should be the most disturbing part to watch because it's actually like the real life part, you know, versus the monsters. Anyways, right. keep and going. That's, <laughs> that's why I wanted to bring attention to it. I didn't want to catch anybody off guard. So Yeah, fair enough. So Possession is about a husband returning from a job. He works as a sort of spy. And he's been away for about a year, and he finds his wife has committed infidelity. Let, let's, let's stop right there. He lives in West Berlin. This is important. So correct. It's like he, he lives is, right by the big wall, you know? It's correct, and that does play a huge part in the movie. Um, so the wife has committed infidelity, and he's determined to try to keep the marriage together. However, her behavior starts getting more and more erratic as he tries to bring her back into the family. Eventually, her behavior becomes so unpredictable and wild that it leads to murder. It leads to a possible blood demon type summoning <laughs> thing. And then the movie just goes off, off the rails into this just disturbing climax of a film that's part chaotic and part what did I just 
witness type thing. This movie basically doesn't give you any answers as to what's going on. Which... Yeah, this mo- this movie starts as um in fact I'm just gonna do my bad pitch now. It's you know, it starts off as a marriage story, the recent Netflix movie starred Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson, and it ends in like David Cronenberg's The Brood, for anyone who's ever seen that. Yeah, it, uh, the way I view it is like it's like Michael Haneke started the film and then they brought in Cronenberg to punch it up right at the end. They're like, Oh my god, what do we how can we save this picture? We gotta put something exciting for the people to watch in there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But but at the same time, I don't think – there's no way the director, you know, was like, oh, I've got to make it this way so that people watch it. I mean, this is a very clear um, sort of, you know, representation of what he feels divorce is like. And he had also just gone through a divorce, which is the obvious reason that he made this movie. Um, but this movie is so fucked up, Sean. Let me just ask you, because that was a good that was a good synopsis. It was a, that was like a good Wikipedia synopsis where right. you re, you reveal just enough, but you don't actually spoil it. Um, so let me ask you, why did you actually choose this movie? Like, why does this really tough to watch movie appeal to you? It appeals to me because I'm always trying to find things that are off the beaten track, and this is about as far off the beaten track as you can get. Just looking at trying to obtain a physical copy of this on eBay is going to set you back like 75 bucks. So this is a very obscure film. And I don't feel like anybody's talking about it. And despite being a very flawed, imperfect movie, there's still so much to admire about this movie that people need to at least know that it exists. Just so its legacy can kind of be carried on. And the appeal to me, it, it the appeal to me in this movie is that it handles the subject matter so poorly at times and so on the nose with its symbolism, but at other times there's these little detailed flashes of brilliance. It's like a mosaic where the individual pieces are more important than what the larger piece is, and to me that's that's fascinating. It's it. It appears like the the director had a vision and then somewhere through he kind of lost his own thread. And yet it's like a gyroscope that was just spinning at max speed and threatens to fall over at any time. But it still keeps itself standing up. This is one of those movies where if it had come out today, I would have said I could have told you immediately. I was like, oh, here's what will happen. This movie will be mediocre will be lukewarm received by critics and it will become a cult classic in 20 years and it'll become a cult classic for a variety of reasons one because it will appeal to sickos like you two because it's two two because it's european and people will just automatically assume it's good because it's european um i mean it was just like so obvious and i've read some good reviews of this movie um one review of it you know, is basically that it starts off as an effective, uh, devastating, and this is a good review the whole way through, but that it starts off as an effective, tragic portrayal of a marriage in collapse, and then ends as a psychological horror film with, you know, demonic monsters. And then the other review of the movie basically is that the movie in itself is madness. Like, the idea is basically that you said it goes off the rails, but mm-hmm. imagine you're actually watching a movie that in itself is schizophrenic. And in, yeah. like, so it's, it's not a representation of schizophrenia. The movie is schizophrenic. The movie itself doesn't have 
a clear grasp on reality. And in some ways, that makes it all the more fascinating to watch because it's 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 the characters and the film itself are desperately uh, grasping or trying to hold on to what reality they can find. You know what I mean? No, I agree. And it, the film is itself is imbued with that kind of loss where you said earlier the director was going through a divorce and he was so depressed he had to basically hand off he asked a friend i think to write the first draft and then he like took over from there that's why i feel this movie is kind of disjointed where the first it's a very you can almost tell the exact point where the movie breaks from being the drama and becomes the more uh, mystical horror aspect and I feel like the director, every day when he showed up on set, I, I doubt if anybody on the crew or any of the actors knew exactly what was he what his plan was for that day. You know, they might have had like a little schedule of the shots they were going to do, but I feel like he was just constantly, he had to have been surprising everybody. You know what, though? I love when that happens. Um, I love when you see a project and there's a very clear mark where you know something has changed in the creative process, and then when you read about it, you can find that exact mark. It actually reminds me of an episode of South Park, of all things, where the writer had started an episode that was uh, spoofing that Oprah Book Club book that turned out to be fabricated, like a million little pieces or whatever. And then in the middle of writing the script, uh, Trey Parker, the writer, got high. And then the second half of the uh, episode is something completely different. And then he wraps it up with a, with the lesson, which is don't get high in the middle of writing. Yeah, I mean, this is this is um, definitely a movie where the director's the director. You can't separate him, his vision from the movie. There's no death of the author here. I don't feel like it's no, every, definitely not. And. The, there's so much subtext, there's so much symbolism to it that, like I said, at some points it's just way too much. It's way too obvious on the nose. That even one of the scenes in the movie where uh, the, the husband, Mark, comes back home after initially breaking up with Anna, the wife, and finds his son has been abandoned for two days, three days, and he's sitting in the hallway like covered in smuckers, there's spilt milk on the floor, and this actually happened to the director. This is a shot-for-shot recreation of what he went through in his own divorce. Wow, I did not read that. That's fascinating. Yeah, so that's, that's what I'm thinking is that this movie, when he pitched it or got it greenlit, it might have leaned way more towards that monster flick type aspect, that body horror, mm-hmm. but... The final film, he was he was trying to exercise his own demons. So that's why the first forty five minutes of this movie are are is is a drama. It's handled the way it is. Is because he was trying to work out his own inner conflicts. You know, there's something about these kinds of directors, Cronenberg, this guy, David Lynch, where their movies are all subtext, but the subtext is always so on the nose that it almost feels ironic to call it subtext. Um, yeah, no, I get what you're saying. Like, the baby from Eraserhead is obviously, like, a fear of fatherhood. Right. I, I don't know how these guys find funding in Hollywood. The only way I can imagine it is that some banker type, some accountant, has 
got the Sean Jones demographic of sick freaks like so pinpointed that he knows exactly how much money this movie should cost and how much it'll take in in profit. Because otherwise, I don't see how these movies appeal to the general public at all. You know, this movie... I would not, like, how do I put it? I would recommend this movie if you're the type of person that likes dead ringers. I would not recommend this movie if you're just, like, sitting at home with your wife in the middle of a pandemic being like, let's watch something pleasant. Like, this ain't oh, that of movie. Of course. <laughs> this, is, this is not a film that you recommend to everybody. This is, this is something where I feel you know, like, you know exactly who in your circle of uh, friends, family would enjoy this or who would that's exactly to. right you you find your mahal your friends who are constantly bugging you about mahal and drive and you recommend this movie to them yeah and like i said this is this is a movie best off discovered on on one's own you have to watch it by yourself and if it it's either you're going to shut it off in the first 15 minutes you're like this isn't for me or you're going to watch all the way through and it it's going to stick with you so sean i want to ask you how did you find out about this movie? I found it through a YouTube channel called The Cinema Cartographer. Uh, just, It's a really great YouTube thing. I don't work for it or anything. I just feel it's a great episode or great YouTube channel. And they had a video on the beauty of ugliness. And this ah. was one of their examples. And that kind of definitely drew me into wanting to track this movie down and watch it just from the 30 second 45 second segment or so they did on it i was i was hooked i had to watch this movie because that's the type of thing it's like how had i never heard of this movie before one of my favorite genres is horror you know horror sci-fi are like two favorite things so once i saw that it was in my uh, wheelhouse i had to i had to find it I find that horror is one of those genres that if you make a horror film that explores real life subjects, like real life themes, you're automatically going to get more favorable treatment from the critics rather than if you just make a horror film that's only intention is to scare. And I'm not sure that's fair because that doesn't always take into account, like, if you make a fantastic horror film that's not about anything worldly, but you just want to scare people. I find that, you know sometimes people critique the intention rather than the execution. But that being said, I think the execution of this movie is fantastic. I mean, there is, there is no question that for all this movie's batshit insanity, it is, extre- it is made by an extremely deft filmmaker. I've never seen any of the, his other movies. I've never heard of the guy. I never heard of this film until after you listened to our Dead Ringers episode and you were like, dude, we got to do possession. Like you've got to see this movie. If you think dead ringers was fucked up. Yeah. It's a a skillfully made movie. There's no question. It's, it's beautiful in the, in my eyes of it. Um, No question. No question. The cinematography and directions out of this world. Yeah. And the way that people are constantly moving into and out of the frames sometimes can be a little jarring, but there's one scene in particular where they're, they've just had their fight and Anna, the wife, is like, I'm going to jump out the window and she rushes over to the window and the way that it's shot is she's in the foreground, her husband Mark's in the background standing and he says something like, well, what's stopping you? And then she, her head raises up into the frame and 
just it's just it's basically cut off at her eyes and i have to point out to Ajani, her her face is so expressive in this and the director milks that for everything it's worth there's so many close-ups in this movie of the actors faces did you notice that yeah no there's no question it's funny too like if you showed me a picture of her right just a picture and i hope this doesn't come off xenophobic she's friends you said but yeah. if you showed me a picture of her i would have said there's no way this lady's american if you said is she oh, american or anything else in the world i would have been like well she's definitely not american yeah, she's definitely uh, she's definitely European looking, and yeah. up until this point, I'm pretty sure she was just a she was already a celebrity, but she was just like a pretty face celebrity. And well, you know, it's funny. It's like there's no such like there's tons of Euro- people of European ancestry in America. I wouldn't even say it's like her physical looks. It would have just been whatever expression, whatever facial facial expression she gave in a photo that you would give to me. I'm like, nope, Americans don't make that expression. Oh yeah, no, and. The way that she moves her body in this, I, I could swear that she had a background in ballet or some sort right. of interpretive dance. Because, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, everything in this movie is exaggerated, but the details of the movements are almost choreographed. Like, yeah. there's a scene where she's trying to explain to her husband why like why she's behaving as she is and her hands are literally fluttering like butterflies but That's they're right. like con- they're almost convulsively and she's doing the same motion over and over again which brings me to another point about this movie is that there's a subtle i don't know how to describe it but all throughout the movie there is repetitions of patterns of speech of movements that keep coming back up. Uh, the main one for me was that there seems to be some something the director's trying to get across with the loss of communication, the loss of speech. Mm-hmm. For example, when Mark first leaves Anna, he goes to this hotel and he's on the phone and it, it's unclear who he's trying to talk to, but he's basically just going, like he's <laughs> lost control of his mouth. Later on, the son he's taking a bath and keeps going like na 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 and further along in the movie Anna's in the church in a beautiful shot where she's being shot from above down and she's looking up at a statue of Christ and she's basically whimpering like a a struck animal she's lost like her words do you think there's like any depth to that or yeah of course of course because I think you know like, look, I'm not divorced. I don't want to get divorced. I am married. Um, but I can only imagine that, like, lack of communication and the breakdown of communication is going to be, um, you know, one of the uh, the main symptoms of a failed marriage or relationship. Um, you know, this movie, you can look at it. You can try and make this movie as deep as you want to make it. I sort of just prefer to look at it as, like, this guy's, like, horror representation of divorce and like the effects that Mm -hmm. it has on the couple as well as the kid i mean for me the most real parts of the movie were um are were everything dealing with the kid uh just in terms of everything that happens to him is grounded in reality even if as all this batshit insanity is happening around him yeah like the effects of the divorce on him are totally grounded in reality. And since I have a son a little younger than this kid, that was actually the hardest part for me to watch was just watching the effects of divorce on this kid. And one interesting thing is on YouTube, 
you can actually watch I don't know if I would call it director's commentary, but there is in there is a interview with the director over this entire length of this movie on YouTube. I didn't get to watch the whole thing. I actually only just discovered it this morning where mm-hmm. he talks about um, the whole movie as it's going on. And at the point with the kid, he's like, look, that was me. I guess his parents had a divorce and he was like, it was traumatic. And he calls it the apocalypse. He's like, when your parents get divorced, it might as well be the apocalypse. It, it's just a totally cataclysmic event in your life. And just to bring it back to what you were talking about, um, the sort of unrestrained manic energy that the actress gives off. Mm-hmm. One of the things I found most fascinating about this movie was watching Sam Neill um, be that exact energy. Because I think of Sam Neill as Sir Sam Neill, right? A uh-huh. proper English actor uh, who's been knighted. You know, to see Sam Neill, to see a young Sam Neill take a part in a really edgy, artsy, experimental movie where he's going to act totally batshit was yeah. just great. And I wonder I wonder how it would be for all the people that first saw Sam Neill in this and then watched him become dignified and prestigious. Like, Yeah, but also, I mean, Sam Neill is not adverse to taking the weirder, more out-there roles. I mean, he was in Event Horizon. I was just going to say, dude, yeah. if you've seen Event Horizon, you know. And then I think uh, there's a movie called, I think, In the Mouth of Madness, where he plays a detective that kind of loses his mind. Like, that's another... I don't think it's as hidden anymore since there's a big H.P. Lovecraft push because that's the inspiration of the film. But he plays another normal, seemingly normal person just driven to extremes. No, I mean, he could definitely do it. He's trained. I was just... I had never known him in anything like this. So I was actually more glued to watching him than the actress, even though I think it's really her movie, just because of the sort of shock. It's almost like seeing your dad act in a movie like this. She's like, what the fuck? Like, I didn't know you had this in you. Yeah, I want to point out there's one scene late in the movie um, where he's talking with Anna's lover, Heinrich, in a bar bathroom, and... He has a toothpick in his mouth. Do you remember the scene I'm talking about? Yeah, absolutely. And he's he has this toothpick in his mouth, and this, this man he's talking to, Heinrich, was his rival who, when he first met him, Heinrich literally beats the crap out of him. Right. And at this point in the movie, that dynamic has completely flipped. He's in control of the, of the scene, the situation, and he's got this toothpick in the corner of his mouth, and he gets real up into Heinrich's face, and he pulls the toothpick out and delivers his line, but with this like wide grin on his face and the way like he curls his lip. It's like if you took the Grinch from the original cartoon and mm-hmm. made Sam Neill try to do his breast impression of that, that's what comes through to me. I, I, that was a little detail I noticed on the second watch that he starts doing like these over the top facial expressions. Yeah. Um, so, like, one thing about this movie, I think we should we should do it now. I think we're going to go into spoiler range here, but we've got to talk about it, is um, the idea of doppelgangers. So, are, yes. we, are we good to just to talk about some of the, uh, the more spoilery things here? Yeah, let's uh, go into it, because let's, you have to talk about what is a plot in this movie eventually. Yeah, we, we got to talk about the monster. All right, so here it is. Anna has been basically renting out a really 
cheap, dusty, dirty apartment that's actually right on the edge of the Berlin Wall. And in this apartment, she has been growing some sort of tentacled monster. This is where the movie really abruptly shifts. She is growing a murderous, savage tentacle monster. Well, the the monster never murders anything. You know what? You are right. Excuse me for... uh, That's a good correction. The monster never hurts anybody. Yeah. But anytime anyone discovers the monster, Anna... uh, very swiftly attacks and murders that person who discovers she, she the monster. Has to, she has to protect it, in, in her words. She has to protect it. She calls it, she calls it her faith. And she, like, like you said, anybody that discovers it, she attacks uh, to more or less lethal degrees. But yeah. you mentioned uh, the doppelgangers. So right when there's the first sign that this movie isn't all that it's it seems to be is when Anna disappears and Mark has to take his son Bob to school and as he's taking Bob into the classroom there's a woman her face is obscured she has long brown hair and when she turns to greet Mark it's Anna but Anna in the movie has like shoulder length very black hair and she has bright blue eyes. This woman, the teacher, has long, like, uh, braided brown hair that has, and has bright green eyes. And uh, Mark immediately thinks that it's Anna. And he's like, what are you doing? Like, are you playing a trick on me? And she, the teacher, kind of laughs it off. And she's like, what are you talking about? She's like, he's like, well, do you know my wife? And she's like, of course. And he's like, you look just like her. And it's just a very odd scene. So that- we should we should we should talk about this right now because this yeah. is one of the questions I have for you. All right. So I'm gonna give away a spoiler here, people, but you already know it by this point. So this movie, Anna and Mark both have doppelgangers of the other of their of their partner and what they think would be the ideal version of their partner, okay? But here's what's interesting. The tentacle monster creature that Anna is growing in her apartment will eventually become the doppelganger of Mark, and it will be the version of Mark that she finds idealistic, a supportive, caring, you know, present husband, but it's Mm -hmm. grown out of, like, literal physical torment and pain, right? The way to get this, this doppelganger of Mark is to grow it in the most hideous fashion possible. Mm-hmm. Whereas Mark's doppelganger of Anna might actually just be another person who he is viewing to be Anna. So imagine that teacher is a real lady, right? Uh-huh. But she's not actually Anna, but she represents all the ideals that Mark uh, has of his wife, that he wishes Anna would be. And in some ways, is it sort of a representation of men will desire, right? It's like. A man's shifting eye, sort of his need to, I guess, spread his seed or to not be monogamous, right? So uh-huh. for him, he places, he finds all uh, the things he wants in his own wife, but he finds it in another person. As where Anna, in order to get the version of Mark she wants, she doesn't actually find it in another person. She grows it, right? She gives birth to it. I found that super interesting. And one of the less on the nose uh, 
representations of its themes because I'm not entirely sure if that's what he intended. Did you pick up on that? No, that is a great way of looking at it because the way that I viewed it was that the Anna doppelganger somehow ties into what Mark did as a spy, like what he was, the person he was assigned to follow. And when he was on assignment, his infidelity kind of gave birth to this uh, Anna doppelganger. And then Anna somehow also knew the same process. So I think this is one of the most loose-ended, like, loose threads of a movie. You can pull on it any way you want, but I think your idea is great, like, that the way that Mark perceives other women now are all this slightly altered versions of Anna, and that's very similar. I don't know if you've ever, you know, the Silent Hill video game series? Yeah, yeah, I know what that is, yeah. Okay, well, there's Silent Hill 2 is about a husband feeling guilty for his wife dying of cancer. And in his hell, in the Silent Hill games, he's attacked by these faceless nurses that their (laughs) faces are all bandaged up, but their bodies are very sexualized. Like, they're wearing low-cut skirts, their uh, cleavage is hanging out. So it's like he doesn't care what they look like. When he was at his wife's deathbed, he was still, you know, lusting after other women. And that was his demons that were attacking him via the Silent Hill, you know, magic or whatever. Dude, you so, got to wonder who the demo is for that video game. <laughs> I mean, people love it. it it's, it's probably the same that would enjoy this movie. Yeah, because right. <laughs> it deals with those psychological, like the psychological manifested as the real. Um, right, right, right. And, and like Anna's inner turmoil is more than just inner turmoil it's actually become something material in the real world and yet it could all just still be a symbol of what maybe um people see in her you know they they get to see this dark part of her that's growing it's taking possession of her right and i don't think it's i don't think it's any coincidence that the man sees what he wants in desire right in terms of there's a different person now that he wants versus the woman giving birth to what she wants. I mean, I guess that in itself is really the most on the nose explanation of this thing I'm talking about, which is she gives birth to the version of Mark that she wants, which you could also say could be her son. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Or as she calls it, like her faith, you know, that uh, she mentions earlier that she, she miscarried her faith and she was left with chance and you know this is the only way that she, because she's kind of coming apart at the seam she thinks Absolutely. she's got two people fighting inside of her and you see it there's the calm Anna occasionally that keeps popping up throughout these scenes and then there's the erratic grabbing things off of shelves saying she has to do um, Bob's laundry but she's grabbing things from the fridge and it's just it's two people fighting for control. It's very schizophrenic in a way. Yeah, and um, one one really um, interesting thing I was I was going to say with this movie is that I have this thing I like to say. I'm no I'm no psychiatrist, no psychologist. I'm not even a marriage counselor. It's just an observational anecdote, which is that I believe that when relationships end, when a woman is done with a man, 
she is done, right? There is no getting her back. Um, mm-hmm. I think I think women are so loyal, so generally more patient with their spouse and more willing to stick with them than if a man has gotten her to the point that she no longer wants to be their partner. I don't think there's any getting that person back. I think that you have you have done too much to uh, to to bring the emotion, the way that she once felt for you back. And what's interesting in this movie is that throughout the entire thing, Mark is trying in his own demented way to save this marriage. He is loyal to her until the end. So loyal, in fact, that when Anna's um, lover discovers that she has been living in this dirty apartment, growing a tentacle monster and killing people, he actually calls Mark to be to tell Mark what's going on. And Mark kills this guy, not in a jealous rage of, oh, you know, you're Anna's boyfriend and I have to kill you, but he does it to protect Anna. And yeah, Mark, he does it to cover it up. Right. Mark continues to try to protect Anna throughout the movie. He tries to you know, rekindle the relationship. And when he doesn't realize that it's over, Anna is done with him. And I yeah. found, I, I, I sort of found that um, congruent with my personal feelings about relationships between men and women, which is when a woman's done with a man, boy, she is done. Like you're not getting her back no matter how much you try. Yeah. And you know, she's just going to grow a, a weird blood sea monkey version right. of you in a dingy apartment. But that's also, you know, when he's trying to protect Anna, that's where the movie kind of taught, tries to tie the threads together. Where, so, by this point in the film, the, the apartment with the dead bodies has been discovered. Mark blows it up. And then he's meet, he, he meets with, I guess, his previous employers that say... The his successor for whatever job he was doing is no good. They need to have Mark back. And this man that's trying to get Mark back is kind of inferring that he knows what Anna is doing. Did you get that vibe? Where I he, did, and, and it makes sense because Mark works in security. Mark is a spy. So you have to assume that Mark and his entire family are also being spied on for the, by the very people they work for. Because if you have a spy, you want to make sure... That he hasn't turned, right? You've got to you've got to yeah. keep tabs on your spy. So yeah, I did I did take I did pick that up too. But they like and, they they go after Anna, and Mark has to basically create a diversion so she can escape as well. Right. So, and what's interesting too, by the way, is that when Mark reveals to Anna that he's covered up her crimes, that's the only time really that Anna. Uh, shows any passion for Mark or any affection for Mark. And in fact, they sleep together. And why Mm -hmm. is that? Because Mark has done something that the idealized version of him should do, which is protect her. Yeah. And, and so this is another thing of the repetition and the, the flipping. Uh, So at the very beginning of the movie, uh, there's a scene where Mark and Anna have a fight and, or yeah. And Anna's at like a very heightened emotional state and Mark literally has to like pull her shirt off and then he like kind of examines her body. And then he does this to the same thing with Bob later on when he's uh, cleaning him up after Anna abandons him. He, he removes Bob's shirt and then kind of like examines his body in like this weird look of rapture almost on his face. When Anna comes back, discovers that Mark has done something good for the relationship. You know, he's, he's been daring. That's when she takes his sweater off and starts looking at his body in this rapture, and yeah, then she's able point. she's able to get intimate with him again, or be intimate with him again. Uh, so that kind of 
oh, well, once Marx surrendered, he really put everything out there on the line. That's when he got Anna to realize, like, to at least come back a little bit. And absolutely. She, be- she became more sedate. Yeah, but, no, absolutely. She, but it, she was still lost. To- yeah, yeah, absolutely. He, the marriage is not saved, but Mark doing a selfless act for her brings her back somewhat because now he's acting in the way that the idealized version of him that she's creating uh, in a demonic tentacle monster is going to become. Like, that's that's the version of Mark that she wants. Um, Sean, before we get to the questions that you have for me, the five questions, is there anything else you want to tackle on this movie? Um, I just think the last thing is uh, the... The very end. Like, what did okay. you think about the end where he's he's fleeing up the stairs, and then Anna and the Mark doppelganger find him, and she's like, "Look at him! Isn't he perfect? Like, what did, what do you think about that reveal?" Yeah, I mean, it's fantastic. It it, it completely. It's important. I mean, I think that if they had never revealed what the tentacle monster is going to become. I think mm-hmm. it would have pissed people off. It would have been too abstract. Um, I'm glad that they revealed what the tentacle monster actually was. Um, I think that's a relief for the viewer so that they don't have to basically be pondering what this tentacle monster was the entire time. In a movie yeah. so full of the abstract, you need some sort of concrete uh, um, plot developments to occur that give weight and meaning to what the director is trying to say. So I was glad it happened. I love that reveal. I think it's great. It's almost like a surprise ending, kind of M. Night Shyamalan version. Yeah. Uh, so, so I was happy with it. And also, I mean, it's it's, it's kind of neat that both the Anna and Mark doppelgangers have the same bright green eyes. So at least that's another kind yeah, of a good thing point. you can tie together. And then uh, the ending. Um, so basically, the Mark uh, the real Mark and real Anna uh, die. They yeah. they basically get shot up, and Anna finishes them off by shooting them both together. The Mark doppelganger escapes, and then it cuts to the Anna doppelganger, her apartment. Bob's sitting there. Yeah. The so let's hold on. So yeah. So she's babysitting Mark's kid. So he hasn't totally forgotten about his son. <laughs> yeah, and um, he's got. Did you notice that he's got all this food set out in front of him, like? In that scene where it's shot, he's got like a poached egg. He's got a bowl of cereal. He's actively eating. There's jams, yeah, jellies. Exactly, like he's surrounded by abundance. She, she's the idealized version yeah. of the mother because the mother has been neglecting him. Yeah. And um, the, there's a ring at the doorbell. Bob, the son, immediately flips out. And he's like, don't answer the door. Don't answer the door. Over and over and over. It's basically all he can say is don't open it. Don't open it. But the Anna doppelganger walks to the door, and then in a very creepy shot, you see, like, the Mark doppelganger. The door it has, like, frosted glass, so you can only see the doppelganger's silhouette on the other side. But he's kind of, like, full body pressed up on it, like, almost writhing against it. Right. And um, then, like, bombs drop as if the World War Three was going on or the Cold War had actually went off. What do you, what do you make of that? So the reviewers and the director have different interpretations of this. Um, the reviewers try and connect that to the Cold War, you know, that the, the, the end of the world is coming, yada, 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 which I don't really buy. The director, in the small bit of commentary I actually listened to on that YouTube um, version of the director's commentary, is like, look, the apocalypse for this young boy has happened, right? Mm-hmm. This is it. And the way I took that sort of ending was that, 
I kind of took it as, look, this boy has lived through a tragedy, and now there will be seemingly supportive people all throughout his life trying to help him, mm-hmm. but it will never matter. It's it, Nothing's going to fix it, right? So now he's presented with what are the idealized version of his parents, right? But it doesn't matter right. to the boy. He knows the truth. He knows what's happened, and it's basically the end of his world. Um, I took it as that meaning. I, I, I think it's that's the best way to look at it be because you know maybe now if anna is meant to be a represent the anna doppelganger is meant to be a representation of everything anna wasn't as a mother that she's still not letting the father in does that mean that bob instinctively knows that anna's the good person in this that he's safe with her and they can't let mark back into their family after being you know the divorce happens yeah, I mean, I think that's a, I think that's a good point. Um, well, that I, leads I, me. I took it. I took it as she was going to let him in. Um, that's how I took it. I th- uh, well, I think it's like she gives like a Mona Lisa smile at the end. Right, like, right. I took like it. Very... That she, I took it that they're going to raise the young boy together. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I never thought of it. For me, I, I would have figured that Bob is basically saying like we can't go through all of this again. You know what I mean? Yeah, and that's what I'm saying is is trying to keep it out. That brings me to one of my questions. Is Mark the antagonist of this movie? Ugh, you know, it's hard for me to say yes to that because as a man, I guess I identify with Mark a little bit, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think um, that's what the movie does. It it's from the beginning is you find Mark as a sympathetic character. He's the one that's trying right. to get the marriage back. You know, you you watch him in a very low emotional state. And then towards the end, he's the one doing these valiant rescue operations. But I feel like after watching it the second time that he might be the bad guy. Like he might be the reason all of this is happening. If if these doppelgangers were a byproduct of an infidelity, that means Mark committed his long before Anna committed hers. Right. And also, by the way, the movie's called Possession, right? And yes. part of the- you know, you said that they both die, right? It just ends in bloody tragedy. And I think that one big part of it is that Mark is trying to possess Anna, right? Like like she is his possession. And I think that, especially when it comes to just like trying to salvage the remains of a divorce, um, none of this would have happened, in my opinion, if Mark had just accepted Anna's decision to get divorced, right? If he had actually yeah. not attempted to save the marriage, none of this potentially would have happened. Um, I think it was it, it, the, his controlling nature is what uh, disgusts Anna. Him trying to control everything, trying to control her freedom. There's tons of examples of this. Uh, for the reason that she went to Heinrich is because Heinrich is he's a very spiritual kind of person. He just wants everybody to love each other. And he says, Heinrich says later in the film, he says, I'm the only one that's not trying to own you. Therefore, I am the one that owns you. So you, you, it's like that man, masculine possession thing. Right. I wonder if in in regards to your question um, about who's the antagonist, I wonder if it largely depends on the gender of the person watching this movie. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. I mean, I'd love to you know talk to a woman that watches yeah, this movie right, to get to right. pick her brain about how she viewed the events because it is a movie made by a man who is going through his real life divorce and yeah. 
It's not like he ever puts down women. Uh, Mark does spit off like one or two misogynistic lines, but the Anna, and this is to the Anna doppelganger, and he's like, all women are sociopaths, they're dangerous, and stuff like this. And the, the Anna doppelganger fires back with, the only thing women have in common is menopause. Yeah, yeah. Or, menstru- or menstruation. Yeah, menstruation. Yeah, that's a good point. So it, it, I think the director is, is able to see both sides, but I do feel like that Anna's supposed to be the sympathetic one, and the audience if, is tricked kind of into believing that Mark is the protagonist. But I think he's meant to be the bad guy in this because the director's trying to, like I said, exercise his own demons. Like he's trying to de- he, If Mark is his stand-in on his view of divorce, it's very easy to kind of be like, oh, well, he, he feels bad. He feels responsible. And this is his way of trying to atone not only to himself, but, you know, to womankind in general. Yeah, I think that's an astute insight. Um, and it would also show, an, uh, I guess, I don't know, like a, uh, an admirable self-awareness on, on his part, right, and his role in his collapsed marriage. Yeah, there's a, there's a healthy dose of introspection in this movie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Why don't you hit me up with your second question? Uh, what did you think of the subway scene? Uh, I mean, all right, so let's let's just tell people now. Uh, Anna yeah. suffers a miscarriage in the subway, um, but it's not an anatomic, a medically correct kind of miscarriage in that basically she suffers a miscarriage, and then almost as soon as she suffers it, the, um, I guess what I would call the seeds of the monster that she's growing begin. And mm-hmm. I almost I almost took it as that basically the monster is responsible for her miscarriage, almost like a, a twin eating another eating its its sibling in the womb. I yes. kind of took it as she was pregnant, but she was also pregnant with the monster, and the monster uh, caused the miscarriage for its own survival. Yeah, and um, but anyway, like uh, the subway scene, I think for a while it was actually hold, held the record for like the longest single shot. Like oh, really? without, without cutting, I I think I remember seeing that somewhere because it's it's like four or five minutes. There are some cuts in it, but the camera like very rarely moves off of her. And I think they they had to do it in the morning. It was freezing, and the director he did they I think they did it in one take, and the director was like, uh, "Can you do it like not do it again?" <laughs> Can right. we do just like a safety net kind of <laughs> scene? Right. Can we film it just in case something went wrong? But I literally, there's a point in it where she's like on her knees screaming and you can see her eyes as they're getting bloodshot. It's it's a truly chilling piece of cinematography. Like, yeah, and that is the most horrifying thing in the movie to me. And, and you know, the actress playing Anna, she's going for the Oscar, right? She's taking this utterly seriously. To her credit. Oh, right. And I think that Sam Neill is slightly more self-aware, not in a bad way, but about what kind of picture this is. Mm-hmm. And I think he kind of plays it a little bit more cheeky than she does. And I think that's important. I think that that dichotomy is important. So, so you know, it can't be too light if they're both playing it as cheeky. But if he was playing it as dramatically as she was, I think it would just be too much and too overbearing. So I actually oh, yeah. appreciate it would, that their become performance like a farce. Is, yeah, exactly. I appreciate that there's that their performances are slightly different and that hers is completely serious and his is um 
slightly manic and slightly satirical. And also just to, mm-hmm. you know, about the subway scene, if you if you read any review of this movie or just look this movie up, the subway scene is the most famous scene in the movie. It is, yeah. I guess, what the movie is known for at the time and in history. Yeah, just if you can find it on YouTube, just watch the subway scene without yeah. context. Yeah, right, you'll right, get right. you'll get the gist of what this movie's all about. <laughs> okay, hit hit me up with your third question. Um, do you think uh, I would mention before, like the, the the way people were moving their bodies in this movie? Do you think that Sam Neill was directed to never ever sit still in any type of chair? Jesus Christ, that's a good question. <laughs> um, or do you think that that was Sam Neill being like, what if I just always fidgeted in these chairs? Here, here's what I'll say. No matter whose decision it was, it's clearly intentional. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's definitely right. intentional, yeah. but... I, I, I don't like, know. I, that, that's a good question. You know, I'm going to give credit to Sam Neill here. I think that what great actors do is... they. I think that the difference between a real actor and... I don't know, a sham actor, a hack, so to speak, is mm-hmm. that a real actor will look at the character on the page and always add, 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 add. Never, And even if it's addition through subtraction, mm-hmm. they will always take that character and that character will turn out different than what the director envisioned. And in a good way, and I think good directors know that in advance, that when they hire a good actor, the character will be different from their original vision. So I'll give it to Sam Neill on that one. Yeah, I, I it's one thing that I just noticed. He like the early on he's in a rocking chair, just violently rocking right. back and forth. Later on he's at a detective's and it's a swivel chair and he just he's always just swiveling left and right as he's at the like, telling the detective what he wants from it. It sounds like a neat little kind of yeah, like, it's kind of like a the, flourish. It's the inner rage and turmoil of man. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's his anxiety he, being made. He presents manifest. he presents a well you know crafted figure to the world, but inside of him is just raging turmoil. And I think that can be you know said of the 20th century man in general, the post World War II man, the man in the man in the gray flannel suit, right? The mm-hmm. idea of a man who's got to be totally conformist, but inside of them is the raging id that's barely suppressed. Right. Yeah. The the more modern we get, the more we have to suppress like the primal primalness of man, and it just comes out in odd ways. Yep. All right. So hit me up with your next question. All right. Uh, what did you think of the side character Margie? Do you remember? Uh, the, is she the, the friend? Is she the friend of the of yeah. Uh, yeah, she's <laughs> annoying. It's kind of like, you know, so I want to, before I even say what I think about that, I just want to say, I think it's a mistake to view this movie as anything other than a movie about divorce. I mm-hmm. think if you really just keep it that literal, it'll help you in reading the interpretations of the movie. So that mm-hmm. being said, my view of her was she's the annoying friend of the annoying supportive friend of a woman that a man has to deal with who may slightly have ulterior motives. Like I read her purpose in the film as very literal in terms of what I'm given. Mm-hmm. Do you like think there, there was probably a Margie in his own divorce in the director's divorce? Do you think uh, Mark and Margie slept together? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I do think that that's very much hinted at. I mean, yeah. even, I mean, towards the end, Anna does murder Margie. Exactly. It's like, what would be her motivation for that other than this like jealous kind of... Yeah, I don't think Margie's necessary other than the director knew a Margie and had to get that in there. Or he just really was fascinated by this lady because some of her line deliveries are hilarious. There's like a a meeting 
uh, she sees Mark and Mark is like, I loathe you. And she replies like, it's so good to see you miserable. And then she's like, right. it's, it's so reassuring. It's, it puts this weird <laughs> flourish in the line reading. There's just, I love when a movie is kind of trying to be serious, but they allow these like side little scenes. They don't really do anything, but they're just goofy. It, like, yeah, it, like yeah. it's a very David Lynch type of yeah. thing. She, she's the most, she's one of the most David Lynchian characters in the movie. Um, but yeah, I do think that she's sort of, you know, if a man has a wife and she has a friend who maybe doesn't like him, that would be the person delighting in the downfall of the man. Yeah, she she loves it. And yet Mark still goes to her for comfort. After he hires right. the detective, there's a scene where he kind of stumbles in. I think he's supposed to be, you know, a little bit tipsy or maybe even drunk. And he tucks his son in to bed and then he goes to Margie who is helping watch Bob and he kind of tucks her in and then leaves the room but then kind of reconsiders and goes back in and they awkwardly embrace each other yeah it, it's it's just one of those little it's, like it's the social fallout of divorce you know what I mean okay that, no that's that's great like yeah what is your circle of friends yeah it's like if I you know if I my wife and I got divorced and I ran into one of her friends on the street I can't ignore that person right but it's gonna be awkward Mm -hmm. yeah and then um my i guess another one of the it's like another side character because the side characters in this movie are just fantastic what right. did you think of of heinrich's performance uh, i mean it's great i think the side characters in this movie all lend to the batshit quality of the movie you know of course it's just, this movie like if it's just Anna and Mark, it's just too much to take, right? But at mm -hmm. the same time, the side characters and the side details of the world don't ground the movie at all. They, they're, no. they're just more of the batshitness, but there's a lightness to them. They, they very much like... Uh, because when Mark goes to Heinrich's apartment, they're interrupted while having their conversation and while Heinrich's mother comes in. Yeah. And... She, like, kind of not acknowledging the men, just kind of shambles into her room and shuts the door. And then Mark's like, did, did you fuck Anna while her mother was here? And Heinrich is like, of course. <laughs> it's, just like, <laughs> yeah, right. it's just like, yeah, man, that's so, that's, I, don't, I don't mean to be a German stereotype person, but that just seems very German to me. It's just right. like, yeah and, that, yeah. and that stuff is necessary in the movie. What I mean, like, because Mark and Anna, it's like what's going on, the dynamic between them is so heavy that these little odd characters that, um, that you know, fill the periphery of the movie they lighten the whole thing. They give us yes. They, they give expand. us much needed yeah. They much they give us much needed breaks for oxygen, right? To get to catch our breath mm -hmm. and to get some air. Uh, without them, the movie would just be too heavy handed. So yeah, no, I'm I'm all about uh, these side characters. They're not grounded. They're not realistic, but they're they're very necessary to just give us moments of reprieve before we dive right back in to the tragedy that is the main plot line of this movie. Yeah, and, and Heinrich serves a great foil to Mark's character. He's basically Absolutely. night He's the opposite and day. of Mark, yeah. If Mark's yeah. the man in the gray flannel suit trying desperately to suppress his id, you know, mm -hmm. Heinrich's pure id. His id's just run amok. Yeah, like Heinrich even accuses Mark of being like one of the people that was basically a Nazi shoving the Jewish people into the gas chambers. He's like, that's what you are. And uh, there's a line that he says that cracked me up. I had to write it down. Um... It's, it's like, 
uh, okay, Heinrich says to Mark, he's like, uh, why didn't you accept the plentitude of my love and pour it over you like fertile rain? And Mark fires back at him later on and says, like, your yin-yang balls dangling from your zen brain. It's just right. these little goofy lines and interchanges that, like, yeah, add much-needed like, levity. People like Heinrich are insufferable. You know what I mean? Right. You know, just, like, yoga people, I call them. Just, like, insufferable yoga people. Just that overly spiritual, everything yeah. is love except, you know, this and that'll happen. And Mark calls him out. He's like, oh, you're God, the one that you meet by fucking or uh, doping, you know, taking yeah. all these drugs. Yeah. And it, it's that kind of interaction is just adds so much to the character of Mark, I feel. Yeah, I always identify with the Mark types of the world in regards to those uh, yoga people. I just, I can't stand listening to someone um, espouse mm-hmm. total nonsense, untrained bullshit theory about something they have no idea about. You know, just because you went to a yoga seminar for a weekend, that doesn't make you a yogi or an expert in metaphysics. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, that's kind of the film's obvious protagonist is you're not yeah. meant to like Heinrich, but... Right, or you still- mean antagonist, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, antagonist. Yeah. And then still at the end, there's like a scene where Mark actually goes back to Heinrich's mother uh, to confirm, basically, that Heinrich is dead. And, you know, Mark's mother asks about this, like, yes, Heinrich is dead, but his soul is still out there. And she's yeah, like, right. did, did Anna steal his soul? And Mark basically doesn't have an answer for it. And uh, I think it's meant to be that the Heinrich's mother then takes a cyanide capsule because... Yeah, she kills herself. It, yeah, she, 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 she poisons suicide. herself. That's right. Yeah, and then there's like a bit on the nose symbolism right here where he like Mark is sitting on her bed, he's holding her hand and then the window next to the bed blows open to show her soul leaving her body. I guess that's yeah. what that's supposed to be. That's right. So you got those kind of metaphysical, that metaphysical thread that runs throughout the movie about God, God being a disease and uh, uh, Mark constantly references his dog dying where it's like, right. oh, my, my dog went under the porch and it yelped like it saw something real. And then towards the end of the movie, Mark speaks of his dog again. And it's like, he's like, yeah, the dog saw nothing. Like, he's like, I don't care. Like, he's so disillusioned right. with everything. He just couldn't give a, he couldn't give a flip. Are there any other questions? Uh, the last one is, um, what do you think about that the movie is set in Germany during the Cold War and that like a lot of the events, especially Anna having her apartment so close to the wall, but yet Mark and Anna's apartment was overlooking to the wall. In fact, that there are guards on the wall that are seemingly looking directly into their apartment with binoculars. What do you think? How do you think the city or the situation as a whole affects the plot? Well, I think there's the very obvious on the nose, um, uh, representation of divorce right east and west Uh berlin are divorced from each other they're two different worlds and that divorce is sort of only held together by a a very um like i don't know like kind of like a aggressive violent presence which is the wall and the guards on the wall now correct me Mm -hmm. if i'm mistaken but anna's from the other side of the wall right i'm not too sure i don't I never picked up on that vibe. For some reason, I thought there might have been a thing that said that her family was on wasn't necessarily in West Berlin, but was in was in one of the Soviet bloc countries. So I just took it as 
you know, Anna's getting divorced from this guy who very much represents the West, right? He's English. Mm -hmm. He's a spy. And as she's separating herself herself from him, she's moving closer to what is home, right? Which is the other side of the wall, the Soviet bloc. That's how I took it. That's that's a way to take it, but I didn't pick up on any, you know, clues of that. Um, another thing was at the time, the director, I think he was like exiled from his home country of Poland. He was. He was, he was literally being divorced from his own country yeah, at the same yeah. time. So I, I think that adds another layer to this movie. And, you know, the most pretentious movies that people will push are because it's like, oh, well, so symbolism, you can read into it. You know, it's all fluff and you can pull any of that stuff out and you're left with basically just like a husk. Like the movie yeah. <laughs> is, is, still ter- is still terrible. It's pretentious. But I feel this movie, it's like it's more like a fun little kind of thing. Like you said about like the symbolism almost being ironic and just yeah. how obvious it is. And I feel like that this movie deserves to be a cult classic. It deserves more eyes on it just because of it. It can be either interpreted as this deep reflection on a marriage failing, or it could also just be like, oh, well, a fascinating blend of drama and horror, like you know, body horror, metaphysical, psychological thriller. That's where this movie deserves an audience because it walks such a fine, like almost uncharted territory in my mind. Right. But what I will say is I think that when it comes to cult classics and movies like this, part of the appeal to people like you, I think, is that not a lot – like it's going to be something that you know about that other people don't, right? The sort of precious like diamond in the rough, I've got this thing that other people don't know about. Um, Yeah, but I'm I'm, doing a very brave thing here because I'm trying to get it to to the the, the – legions of fans that this podcast right. has i want them all to know yeah. all six of them all six all six of, I mean, you know what six is better than none um what i will say though is um just like sort of regarding uh uh the question um i have a or not really the question but basically your idea of like some movies you know when you when you strip away the you know everything outside the husk is an empty shell mm-hmm. i have a very um black and white sort of idea of movies at the end of the day. And it doesn't have to do with whether or not you like them. I think movies are either good or bad. At the end of the day, the movie is either good or bad. It's either made with care and well-executed or it's not. And this is a good movie. There's yeah. no question. This is a good movie. That doesn't make it a movie for everyone. There's no way a movie oh, like course. this is going to be for everyone. You can... My, my my mission in life, Sean, literally my only mission in life is to get people to understand that just because you like something doesn't make it good and just because uh-huh. you don't like something doesn't make it bad. You can yeah. watch this movie and not like it. It's still good. You know? And right. I think the this, is, with, this is yeah. like, I, I feel like this is a movie that if you love movies, you need to see it because even if it's not your thing, it's not to your taste, your palate will be expanded. You know, That's absolutely you'll, right. You'll, You'd be like, okay, well, this is something that, because I said, this movie is very, very unique in the way it's handled, yeah. directed, executed. You get, I can't think of any movie comparable to right. this it, movie. It's like I if mean, you love food, if you love cuisine, at some point you're going to have to eat uh, beef tartare, right? It, seems exactly. gross, seems gross, uncooked beef. But at a certain point, if you're really serious about cuisine, you're going to have to try that dish. So I, I totally agree yeah. with you regarding this movie. Yeah, it's it's a it's a good film, well worth discussing. It's got plenty to talk about. Um, all right, let's let's move on to uh to bad pitches. I sort of already gave mine away, which is that it's a marriage story meets the brood. Now, I don't want to mm-hmm. spoil the brood for anybody, 
But you can imagine what The Brood is about. It's a David Cronenberg film that I actually happen to love. Um, and you can imagine mm. what The Brood is about simply by the fact that I've already said one half of my pitch is a marriage story, right? So if one half is a marriage yeah. story, then then you can guess what The Brood is going to be about. But I don't want to ruin The Brood for anyone. Uh, Sean, what's your bad pitch? Uh, I, I accept to say, be like, Moonstruck meets Eraserhead. Yeah, perfect. I think, I think we're both on the exact same page. It's 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 so obvious because the movie in itself yeah. is sometimes, you know, and I've and I've done this before on this podcast, some movies in themselves are bad pitches. Yes. They're literally one thing meets another thing. It's so obvious that that's what they are. They are just one thing meets another thing. And yeah, so, th- and this yeah. is about as heterogeneous of a movie as you can get. It's literally like a milkshake where there's just nothing but solids on the bottom and the top is like <laughs> is like broth. It's yeah. just like, okay, you get what you want out of the top half and then there's yeah. the bottom half. It's yeah, a parfait. Which you, which you really <laughs> yeah. got to suck hard through the straw to get down. Yeah, but this movie, I mean, this movie you can separate into two parts, but taken as a whole, it's not the prettiest, you know, it's not the prettiest painting in the museum. But it's fascinating. It's going to hold your attention. Look, or without you're going the com- to dismiss it. without the combination of the two parts, the movie's forgotten. Like the reason we're talking about the movie is because they combine these two. Of parts. course, yeah. it's either it's either going to be a bad drama or a a bad nonsensical horror film. Exactly, and they lend you, themselves to each other. Yes, they intertwine. They they don't fight each other. It just kind of happens, and you're just like. Okay, like I said, there's a sh- there's literally a shift, like 45 minutes in the movie, where you're just like, okay, we're doing this now, and it's fine. The the plane literally just nosedived on you, and in right. your seat, something lurches in your body, reacting to it, and yet you're like, okay, yeah, I'm in. Let's keep going. Anyways, just to recap, uh, Sean, that was fun. I wonder, you know, I'm, I'm glad you came on and did that. I wonder if you've pigeonholed yourself now so that the next time you come on, it's going to have to be a movie like this. I think it's going to be weird if you come on again and then it's gone with the wind. Right. No, I think uh, I, I feel most at home in, like like I said, uh, horror, science fiction. So whenever I think you guys, your podcast is just getting a little too light, a little too mm-hmm. normal, yeah. <laughs> uh, just invite me back on and I'll, I'll weird it right back up for you, man. These, and now, now I'm, now I'm going to do some shameful plugging. Um, for anybody that uh, enjoyed Sean and I's conversation, um, part of the reason I was putting it on this podcast is for all of you that don't know, Sean is actually an extremely avid reader. Uh, much more than I am, in fact. I'm, I'm a pretty avid reader, but not like Sean. And Sean and I are are, are about to make what is an unnamed um, literature podcast coming up. So we're going to be doing the exact same thing that Hidden Gems movie podcasts do, but with books instead. So if you like the way that you know Sean and I were talking about this movie, we're starting a new podcast project that we don't have a name for yet, um, and it's going to be about literature. So I hope you guys um, enjoyed that. And when... I do start when Sean and I do start the literature podcast. I'll make sure to tell everybody on this podcast, the name of it, where to find it, yada, yada, yada. Sean, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you again for having me. And I look forward to doing the the literature podcast, get some books that won't bore people out there (laughs) to the masses. Perfect. Perfect.